Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 43 for January 2015. Happy New Year from uh, Quinn and Mike at Open Apple. Speaking of Mike, how are you? I'm good, Quinn. How was your uh, holidays? Oh, it was excellent. I spent some time with the fam fam up in CanCan, uh, which is <laughs> Canada for the uh, non-limerically inclined. And uh, yeah, it was great. It was cold, but uh, lots of fun. And uh, got home in time to do some retro computing stuff, which uh, I'm still working on as we speak. And uh, well, not as we speak. I, I put down the power saw in order to record the show here. But uh, <laughs> yeah, otherwise, uh, it's been uh, been really great. How about you? Well, first, before I answer, I, I have, did have a question for you because um, for as long as I've known you now, you've been saying, you've been threatening that when you get back there, you're going to have to dig your 2GS out of the basement and get your discs and all that. How did that go? Uh, excavation? Yeah. So I uh, I did, in fact, I, I went up there this time with noble intentions. So for anyone who doesn't, doesn't <laughs> uh -oh. know by now, uh, yes, my family is up in Canada where I'm from. And my parents' basement contains all of my Apple II goodies, which they have, uh, like the wonderful parents they are, they've loyally kept clean and dry and stored all these years uh, from house to house. And so there is an Apple II Plus and a Laser 128 and an Apple II GS with many uh, floppy drives and hard drive for the 2GS and lots and lots of other goodies. There's a joystick. Uh, I've got a trackball. There's a couple of mice. Lots of fun stuff and uh, reams and reams of floppy disks. And there's just no way, unfortunately, that I can get it all down here where I live in uh, California. So I've been thinking, well, maybe I can at least go up and rescue some of the floppy disks. And sure. so I thought this time I will do that. And unfortunately, I just didn't have any room at all in my luggage. So, oh. yeah, mm. so I failed in that mission. But uh, occasionally my parents do come to visit me and they like to drive. So uh, the next time they come to visit, I'm scheming to bribe them into loading all that stuff into their truck and bringing it down here. But we'll see. Well, either that or, or you can take like a cryoflux card or something like that up there with you and just image the diskets while you're there. I could, yeah. That would be tough, actually, just the way that the uh, the stuff is pretty buried. But uh, I did uh, uh, okay. I did do some digging and I just sort of verified that it's all still there, including some of the uh, more critical items like the 2GS monitor, which, of course, is very important. Yeah, it's, it's all there. Uh, the one thing I actually didn't do, which I... I'm kicking myself for, for forgetting to do. Uh, I wanted to take the cover off the 2GS and just look at that battery. Oh, yeah. Very important. And yeah, and honestly, my plan was to just to just cut it off uh, right now, whether it's, you know, leaking yet or not, because uh, as we all know, those batteries, there's only two kinds of 2GS batteries, ones that are currently leaking and ones that are <laughs> imminently going to leak. So uh, I don't That's know. Yeah, I don't know which I have yet. I'm scared to crack it open and maybe I'll find out, <laughs> find a big old mess down there. But uh uh, luckily, all of the equipment is stored in a cool, dry place, and so it should be, it's as, about as well stored as one could hope for, so I'm relatively confident it will all still be there. But yeah, I am looking forward to doing some digital archaeology on all those floppy disks. There's just, you know, years and years of school projects and, you know, learning to program adventures and things stored on all of them that, uh, with along with hundreds of pirated games, but uh, it's the, uh, the personal stuff that would be fun to go through. So yeah, so the TLDR is I failed. Maybe next year. So uh, how about you? What, any Apple II related news in your holiday uh, season? 
Uh, well, if you pay attention to the Facebook Apple II Enthusiast group, you will see that uh, I, I posted a picture of a gift that my father actually tracked down for me. It's the it's a, a die-cast 118th scale miniature Porsche 935 K3 dressed up in the Apple-sponsored livery of the 1980 Le Mans 24 Hours race. That was very cool. And and I'd, I'd seen this before online and thought, gee, that's kind of cool. But there were only 3,000 of them made, and they sold out quickly, and they retailed at like $170. So it wasn't something that I was going to buy for myself. And he managed to track one down for less than that. And when I got it, obviously, having something in front of you is a lot cooler than, than just the pictures. And there's certainly, when, when you get it, you open it up and you get to play with it a little bit. Yeah, it was uh, it was really neat. I was very impressed. So thank you, Dad. Yeah, I have to say the pictures of that thing, as, as of course, a retro Apple fan and a racing fan, the pictures of that thing melted my brain. It is <laughs> amazing. I had no idea that Apple ever sponsored a race car. So, yeah, to see a race car all covered in the stripey Apple logos was just, yeah, I was blown away by that. I had no idea. So here's the thing about that, uh, and and it would make sense because it was made by True Scale, which is a company that makes these, you know, miniature die-cast models for collectors that they would market it to the collectors of miniatures. Uh, because if you read through that thread, you can see that, you know, it, some people obviously knew what this was, but a lot of Apple II fans had no idea that that they had done this and uh, so I, I imagine most of those 3,000 mini Porsches ended up in collector's hands. Now, um, it's actually not a bad thing because I think a lot of dealers and, and brokers bought them like 20 of them. And because you can find them pretty easily on eBay for, you know, 100 to $120. So if you really want one, they're, they're out there. They're not hard to get a hold of, even brand new unwrapped. It's a little pricey, but for the Apple II fan who has everything, <laughs> as far as the, the actual, the Porsche itself. So, Steve Jobs is known, you know, later in life as having been a fan of that, uh, of Mercedes and he had that 55 SL or whatever it was. He drove without plates and would park in handicapped spots all <laughs> over the place. But earlier in his life and career, he was a fan of Porsche. And, um, in fact, when the Mac came out and he was trying to motivate the sales team that the top sales people would get, uh, would get, I think it was that he gave away 944s or something like that. So he does have the history with the Porsche. And when this car debuted in 1980, at the Sebring 12 hours, Jobs was there. And I'm not sure how this sort of slipped through the cracks other than it has nothing to do with computers other than that they sponsored this thing. For those who don't know, they, they keep track of these cars and the history of the, the supercars, the racing cars, uh, by, by the chassis serial number because, you know, they get banged up and parts get replaced and, and new sponsorship comes on and, and it gets repainted and things like that. So the, this actual chassis as an Apple car raced several times in 1980 and then it was repainted as a Red Roof Inn or something like that. It became several other things before in, in its life. So there are some videos out there online of an Apple 935 K3, which um, apparently so, – so in Europe right now, I guess there's one of these – there's this car that – Looks like one, but I guess it's not. It's just it's a copy. It's a tube car with with the delivery painted on. But other than that, and the, an original, it has does have a 935 K3 engine in it, but it's not the same car. But it's still kind of cool to if you want to see, I guess, what it looked like and and things. The, the videos are there, and it's it's fun to take a little diversion down this weird side path of Apple history. Yeah, we'll try and link to some of those videos maybe in the show notes because it is fun to see that. Uh, yeah, that's quite quite a popular thing to do actually with uh, vintage racing is to sort of pick uh, a popular or a, uh, an interesting livery from the time and, and recreate it. So uh, yeah, you can at least get the gist of what it looked like. Uh, 
fact, uh, my own racing team, we've got a Lotus that we have run in both the John Player Special livery and we're currently running it in the Gold Leaf Lotus livery uh, for that cool. reason. So, and, uh, you know, a lot of BMW racers use some of the, you know, classic um, Andy mm. Warhol liveries and other uh, M various uh, M division liveries that uh, they used. So, uh, yeah, it's that that thing is really, really cool. So, uh, and as you say, it's probably, if, uh, if not now, uh, soon will be available, probably relatively inexpensively because most of them are probably going to, you know, Porsche uh, collectors who are notorious for wanting to have every version of every particular model of every livery of every car. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, Porsche uh, diecast collectors are, are, are famous for having walls and walls of apparently identical looking 911s and 944s and 935s. Wow. So somewhere out there, there's probably uh, one of those who doesn't even care about com- uh, retro computers, but would uh, let it go for a reasonable oh, sure. price. So, yeah. So, well, that's very cool, though. The thing is, I guess the one in Europe isn't, I don't know if it's been banned from the tracks, but there's a a couple of blogs out there that both kind of make a sort of hazy mention of the fact that A, this is a copy and B, the guy that owns it is not telling people that it's a copy. Mm. I don't know that if, I don't know if he's actively lying about it. That wasn't the impression I got. It was more like, well, he's okay if you believe this is the original (laughs) car and I think the I think the tracks and the rules over there are pretty stringent about that sort of thing, and and so I don't know if he got himself banned because they found out that he was not telling the truth or, or what the deal is. But I guess it hasn't been racing there as recently. But the videos are still up, and uh, it's yeah, it's certainly a rush because a couple of them are like dashboard cams of other cars chasing this car around the track, and so you get to actually see it in action. It's a lot of fun to watch, actually. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what the story is there. I mean, if if he's campaigning it in vintage racing, he certainly wouldn't even make it through tech, tech inspection. I mean, they would have, yeah, certainly <laughs> caught that instantly. So, uh, yeah, I wonder what the story is there. Usually uh, getting banned from races is frequently political as much as anything. <laughs> Maybe he uh, took the wrong people out to dinner or something. Who knows? So, uh, yeah, so moving along, I guess, uh, I wanted to, before we move into some of our uh, normal segments, we've got a really cool interview coming up and uh, lots of news yeah. to talk about. Uh, I wanted to give a quick shout out to uh, Sean Vahey at uh, A2 Central. I've heard of that site. <laughs> yeah, have, haven't we all? Uh, <laughs> yeah, to me, it's just hands down the, the number one Apple II news site. And uh, it's uh, certainly uh, bookmarked in my browser and I go there regularly. Uh, he had expressed recently on Facebook that uh, he was uh, the site was taking a lot of time and a lot of energy, and he wasn't sure if you know people still uh, still appreciated it or or not. And I uh, hope that uh, he knows that we do. I certainly do. So uh, if any of you are wondering where to go for Apple II News, you should uh, go to a2central.com. And you know we've linked to that indirectly for lots of stories here on the show, and uh, I'll link to it again uh, right here just for that reason. So in 2011, maybe, I'm not great with dates. Um, basically, Sean asked me if, if I would take over as sort of the lead technical editor for A2 Central to, to post all the stories and stuff. And he would still manage the back end of the site and take care of, you know, the, the CMS and things like that. But, um, and I agreed and I made it for, I think, a year, maybe a little bit longer. And man, it is a lot of work keeping that thing updated and keeping track of the stories. And of course, when you're doing that, you're competing with Bill Martins over at Call Apple. Hi, Bill. <laughs> so you want to get the stories up first and, and it's, yeah, it's, it's tough. And so yeah, definitely, Sean, my hat's off to you for, for hanging on, hanging on as long as you can. We do get a lot of our uh, news tips for the things that we talk about on the show from. A2 Central and from Call Apple and other sources. But I think it's a really important resource for the community. And if Sean doesn't want to continue doing it, I hope that he can find somebody who will step up and at least help out and maybe 
lessen the, the burden a little bit because it, it is it is a ton of work. Yeah, definitely. I think anyone who's never run a website maybe doesn't appreciate that. It seems like a simple thing, but, uh, you know, I've got my blog and, you know, I, I update that pretty infrequently, but even that, I'm just amazed. Sometimes it takes, you know, an entire Saturday to do one little thing on there. Just things go, <laughs> things go wrong and, you know, software doesn't cooperate or, you know, the server host doesn't cooperate or whatever. So it's, yeah, it is astonishingly time consuming to do. So if anyone out there is interested in, in volunteering to help out with A2 Central, I'm sure that uh, Sean would definitely appreciate it. And uh, we will link to contact info as well if you are interested. All right. So I guess that wraps up our little intro and um, we'll just kind of roll into our interview here. It's uh, um, with, um, I guess, how would you describe him? Is he a maker? Is he a hacker? Probably all of these things. Yeah. Ben Heck, who we know from the Apple IIGS that he did and turned into a laptop in 2008, and then uh, more recently he turned an Apple I into a laptop. He agreed to sit down. He's been making the rounds, you know, so you may have heard some of this on some of the other podcasts before, but I think you'll find that it's still a pretty interesting interview. Yeah, we uh, we had tried to focus on sort of Apple II related uh, content. Uh, ben has uh, you know reasonable amount of history there, and he's done a number of projects uh, in the area of Apple II related stuff. So we're really excited to have him on the show. Yeah, very personable and and just a fun interview. He's a great talker. So uh, here you go. Hi, I'm Randy Wigginton, and welcome to the Open Apple Podcast. Most of our listeners probably, in fact, I know that all of our listeners know who our interview subject is today. I became familiar with him back in, I don't know, 2008 or so when he decided to turn a 2GS into a laptop computer. And I know a lot of other people went, who is this Ben Heck person at the same time? Uh, so yes, we have Ben Heck with us. Hello, Ben. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm okay. I'm perplexed by this thing. Sorry, I was typing into my calculator. I'm I'm okay. <laughs> Welcome to OpenApple. Thanks. What is OpenApple besides a key on a Macintosh? Well, uh, we are the uh, the number one co-ed hosted Apple II podcast, in fact. By number one, she means only. And still number one. Thank you very much. And actually, the only Apple II podcast of any description, Carrington Vanston. Oh. Sorry, that's, that's, that's an inside joke, Ben. All right. So <laughs> why don't we, uh, yeah, why don't we roll into some questions here for Mr. Heckendorn? Um, many of our listeners also know you from your general hacking exploits, myself included. I'm a big fan of your uh, site and your TV channel, or your uh, YouTube channel, rather, that you've got with uh, Element 14 going there. Thanks for watching. Brought to you by Element 14. Uh, so why don't we start with the uh, the new stuff, actually, since that's kind of what prompted this conversation initially. Uh, tell us about your uh, Apple One replica project. How uh, how did you get uh, how did you get the idea to do that? Uh, last year, I acquired a ZX Spectrum from Ireland. I'm obviously a big 8-bit computer fan. Anyway, we did this ZX Spectrum project over the course of a few months, basically last summer, and that really got me back in the mood for 8-bit computers. So after I completed that, I was like, hmm, what computers have I not done anything with yet? And the Apple One was one of them. Also the Amiga and the Atari ST, and I guess the Macintosh. But, you know, I got I to gotta get through them one by one. So uh, the Sinclair Spectrum I had rewired the entire computer by hand, which was, you know, kind of ridiculous, but also a fun challenge. Like some people might do crochet or needlepoint or build a ship in a bottle. I like to wire complex circuits by hand. <laughs> so when I got, came to the uh, Apple One replica, I'm like, oh, well, this is just a 6502 computer with a strange video circuit. So this is, this is pretty simple. So it was fun to do. And then also 
obviously I'm big in the maker movement and I like to build things. And the Apple One was, of course, a kit, not a full computer. So I wanted to make something that kind of harkened back to that, you know, wooden box era. That's why I went with a wood motif in my design. So that's kind of why I did it. Also because it was cool. <laughs> there is sort of a, a sub hobby, I guess, of people replicating Apple Ones these days. And I guess it's a tar- it's a target for replication because it's so kind of simple. And yeah. uh, one thing I see a lot of on the internet is these two chip clones uh, where people try to clone it with, you know, just the CPU and one other support chip. And y- your design is similar to that, but you made some interesting choices. For example, I like the use of the uh, propeller to kind of do the video and some of the ancillary tasks. What sort of uh, prompted those particular design decisions about which chips to use and so forth? Well, I was researching and I came across the uh, Replica 1, I believe, is one of the kits you can get. Yes, Vince Briel's kits, Sam. Yep, and they were using a propeller. And I I actually used that microcontroller in my pinball projects as well as other things. So I was very familiar with it. I was like, oh, I know that. I know that microcontroller inside and out this will be easy and i re- uh, i wrote my own keyboard scanner so instead of like hooking up a ps2 keyboard i created a keyboard matrix that would be scanned by the propeller and then i would send that back and uh, i still use the what was it 6532 uh peripheral interface adapter chip i use an original one but i believe i probably could have emulated that with the propeller given more time so did you use uh, like a vintage 6502 off of, you know, eBay or did you use like a modern one from Western Design Center or? I bought a vintage one off eBay. By vintage though, oh gosh, it was, wasn't that old. I want to say it was like a 2002 was the date code. I mean, okay. they still, obviously they still make that stuff. Yeah. I think they still make the Z80 too, don't they? Yeah, I believe they do. Yeah. And the 6502, they still make it. The modern one is... Uh, it's still a 6502. It's got a lot of new features. It's got better, you know, power management, and it's it's almost kind of a microcontroller. Uh, but it is it'll still run 6502 code, and the pinouts I believe are still compatible. So that's uh, yeah. That that company, what Western Western Design rather? Center, yeah, right. Yeah, the, they they were the ones who made the oh gosh, it was in the Apple II GS, right? Where it was the same thing that was in the Super Nintendo. Yeah, right? the it 16 bit mode as well. Yeah, the 65C816. Now the uh, one of the more interesting aspects of your project is the sort of laptop form factor. What uh, what prompted you to do that way? I've built many laptop-style projects in the past. I famously made a laptop out of the Xbox 360. I've done the PlayStation 3. I did something recently with the Xbox One. I'd also done a Commodore 64, two different versions, an Atari 800. Was there something else in there? Oh, Apple IIGS, as you mentioned. You know, so people, when they think of portable computers, they think of laptops. So that's a fun form factor to do. Also, I had these um, dodgy LCD screens laying around. And I was like, well, I got to use these things up for something. They're like, you know, eight-inch composite screens. And I'm like, oh, an old computer with a crappy terminal output would be perfect for these screens. So um, part of it was just use up some LCDs. Well, so that's interesting because that actually leads into one of my other questions, which is about the screen. So, uh, you know, a lot of us in the Apple II community are trying to, uh, we're always looking for new display solutions because, of course, these old CRTs are are dying and they're also just bulky and awkward and annoying. So uh, LCDs are always desirable, but it's getting harder and harder to find, you know, four, three aspect LCDs with composite inputs that will display Apple II content in particular because the Apple II's output is not exactly NTSC. It's sort of NTSC-ish. And so I guess my question for you is, is how do you go about 
sourcing your screens and what kinds of things do you look for? Do you have any tips for people wanting to, you know, find LCDs for retro computers? So it's not quite like NTSC. It doesn't have the uh, color chroma subcarrier or the audio. What's different about it? Well, I guess that's so, not really answering your question. <laughs> yeah, so the, the Apple II's uh, composite is, so it relies on artifact color for number one. It doesn't have proper color. Uh, it does have the color burst signal, but uh, it just, yeah, it doesn't, it relies on artifact color. Oh, really? So. All the color is via artifact? And I didn't know that. Yeah, I remember that from yeah. the Atari 800 days. Yeah, so that's why it has all these annoying properties uh, in software where, for example, certain colors can't be on certain pixels and certain colors can't be next to certain other colors and so on. So it was all. So you would, you would get four colors. You'd get black, white, and then you'd get the uh, odd shift and the even shift, right? Basically, yeah. And then Waz ended up adding this also this other sort of high bit trick where you can squeeze two more colors out of it. So it has six colors, but there's uh, two whites and two blacks. And so this, yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it's all very strange, uh, but it's sort of like six uh, opposing angles in the NTSC uh, signal space, basically. It was, all, it was all about reducing chip count. So he was able to do all this with a very small number of chips, which is why it's all so weird. You know, I, I hadn't realized that there was basically only single bit color on the Apple II. I always assumed it was like two bit, like the, you know, other 8-bit computers. But I guess it was older than the Apple, the, I'm sorry, the Atari and the Commodore. So it's not surprising. You know, it, he did some some pretty clever things with it. You know, he does manage to get 16 colors out of low res. And in fact, the double high res mode is especially face melting because it does, you know, 16 colors at uh, uh, nearly high res resolutions. But with it just absolutely Byzantine memory structure architecture that's just, yeah, it requires a lot of software to work with. But, uh, uh, and that, so the, yeah, the two modes that are especially difficult for modern uh, LCDs to display are the double high-res graphics mode and the 80-column text mode. So those are the two that, you know, we're always really looking for LCDs. So, so where Would do you... those display on a standard uh, Apple II monitor or not? Yeah, yeah, a standard Apple II monitor has no trouble or sort of any, honestly, any composite monitor from the period. I don't know what it is, but older monitors seem to be, especially CRTs, seem to be a lot more tolerant of some of the oddities of the video signal. So, uh, but modern LCDs are a little fussier, so you tend to get blurring and instability and so on in the picture. A lot of the... Uh... I don't know necessarily about the Apple II, but I know the old game consoles, they were only single field. In an NTSC frame, there's, you know, it's interlaced and there's two fields and they would actually only use one of the fields. You know, you see a resolution like 256 by 240, whereas NTSC frame is like 480 visible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can understand why a modern LCD, I mean, LCDs are kind of, they want a specific input. Mm-hmm. So all these tricks that they use to get higher resolutions is probably why you're having trouble mapping it. Yeah, it's basically down to how good the driver board is for the panel. And uh, yeah, the driver boards tend to, uh, at least for composite, either be not very good or just really fussy about the quality of the signal coming in. So a Apple to composite video to modern VGA connector would be something people would want to buy? It, Very much so. Yeah, it is. And in fact, the ones that are out there, you can certainly buy composite to VGA converters on eBay and so on, but they almost all don't work <laughs> with the Apple II. <laughs> so. hmm. I guess you'd have to take a look. Well, you know, we just recently did something like that. We found this weird LCD glass from eBay or China or something. And it's this uh, like four to one ratio LCD. It's like really wide. And uh, I reverse engineered it to figure out how to get signals to it. 
uh, that's probably what you'd have to do is you'd, you'd have to go through all these. You'd have to put a test pattern on the Apple II and then hook it up to an oscilloscope and basically kind of reverse engineer the signals coming off of it. And then if you could take those signals and put them into an FPGA, then you could remap it for a VGA or HDMI or DVI or some other modern connection. Mm, that's that's a good thought. There are so there is uh, one fellow in Japan who uh, uh, has a small company called Nishida Radio, and he produces probably some of the best video converters for the Apple II. And he's got a couple of solutions that were possibly developed with a process like you describe. And uh, yeah, his adapters are pretty great, but uh, there's there's quite a huge demand for them. And he's only you know one guy, and he can only make so many. It's a hobby for him. So uh, yeah, there's definitely a market for that. So, uh, well, so speaking of, of this problem, why don't we roll into your uh, 2GS? So we'll, yeah, we can circle back to your Apple, uh, Apple One replica later if we like, and we'll certainly link to that okay. in the show notes so everyone can uh, look at that. The Apple II video is is challenging, but what's even more challenging is Apple IIGS video. And in fact, this is probably the number one source of conversation about the 2GS in any forum that you might find, uh, and that's how to replicate that video, because it had that really weird uh, 15 kilohertz refresh, uh, horizontal refresh uh, RGB signal, and it's uh, yeah, it's notoriously difficult to replicate. It's similar, actually, to arcade monitors. It's basically arcade video. Yeah, I was going to say, video. that's not that weird. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's a, certainly weird in the land of, uh, of retro computing. Well, you wouldn't be able to hook that up to a modern VGA monitor because the refresh rate would be too too low. Yeah, so, and again, there are some converters, uh, some of the arcade converter boards do work, but uh, so what's interesting about your 2GS uh, laptop project is that uh, you used an LCD. Can you tell us a little bit about how, how you made that video circuit work? Yeah, I believe we just used the composite video output on the Apple 2GS. I mean, apparently it had one. This has been like six years ago. I don't remember all the details. Of course, composite and not very good are kind of synonymous. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, so on the 2GS, it's bad enough that it basically renders the 640 by 200 video mode unusable, uh, which is why a lot of people are unsatisfied with it. That makes sense because, you know, the uh, the text would artifact in, into each other. You know, like an N might become cyan square, for instance. Yeah, I, I remember it being acceptable, but you're right. Uh, you know what would work? It's kind of small, but you know those uh, Sony PlayStation 1 portable monitors they had? I don't know if mm-hmm. you've ever come across one of those. I remember those, yeah. They, they, I think they called it the PS1 or something, didn't they? Yeah, and they had a monitor. That little monitor, I don't know if they're probably harder to find than they used to be because, you know, time has passed. That thing was really awesome. That thing could take 15 kilohertz RGB in, so you could hook it directly up to arcade machines. Oh, really? And it, prob- it probably would also work with Apple Apple IIGS. Hmm. Uh, it's obviously small in size. Huh, okay, so an adapter that would take the 15 kilohertz RGB signal from a IIGS and See, that would pro- that would actually be pretty straightforward to make into VGA. You'd basically just have to do a line doubler. Right. Yeah, and that's basically what the uh, the arcade adapter boards do, and it, and there are a couple of those that do work with the 2GS. Uh, it's uh, the challenges are basically yeah to get the quality uh, really really high because of course the original 2GS monitor just looks beautiful. It's just really really sharp and nice, and that's of course what most 2GS users are used to. So any any substitute, if it isn't that good, then everybody's unhappy. So, and then the other problem is delay, of course, for arcade games. If the adapter introduces any kind of latency into the signal, then it's kind of becomes unusable for, for yeah, some of the faster there's, games. Uh, there's a lot of delay, basically. And well, modern electronics are actually worse because you have HDMI and that gets you know converted to your glass. Then you have post processing going on, so you can have quite a bit of delay. Oh, of course, I'm talking about modern stuff. Uh, I was going to say the Apple 2GS. Uh, hold on, I'm recollecting my thoughts. 
Blah, 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 blah. Arcade. Shoot, I completely forgot what I was going to say about the <laughs> pixels. <laughs> it's all right, we'll circle back. Do you have sources that you rely on for LCDs, or you, you mentioned you have a bunch of them around you're trying to get rid of? Where do you where do you go for that kind of stuff? Okay, I used to get them from uh, a place called Excel Electronics, which would sell, they would kind of, it was kind of like for high-end car stereo, so they'd build monitors into the cars or, you know, build things into your dashboard. And uh, I really liked them because they had very simple chips. They had PAL NTSC. You know, they had two two crystals or some sort of, you know, clock divider to do that. And the prices were reasonable. It's kind of harder to find screens now because that whole small LCD market has been completely gutted by cell phones, Mm -hmm. which, of course, have LCD screens, but not really anything that you'd use for a, a hobbyist standpoint. And it's also kind of tough to make, well, at least from my perspective, make anything portable because... No, who wants a 17-inch LCD when you can get a 20-inch for $200 from Best Buy? So it's it's portions of the LCD market are kind of becoming extinct, mm-hmm. yeah. at least in my experience. Um, there's a lot of stuff on eBay. Uh, that's where I found my weird widescreen LCDs. But then I tried to reorder them, and I got something completely different. And the resolution on the box wasn't actually what they were. So it's kind of the wild, wild west. But I've noticed, yeah, usually for weird LCDs, eBay is a pretty good solution. Okay. Yeah, you're exactly right about the LCD, that sort of middle zone of, especially for, for Apple IIs, you know, people are often looking for something a little smaller. So something in like the 8 to eight to 12 inch range, let's say. And yeah, that that's a tough range to find for three aspect. And of course, yeah, the other problem is everything's 16.9 now. So there was this sort of narrow window of time at the end of the 90s where you could still get, you know, four, three small LCDs before 16, after CRTs, but before 16.9 took over. So you sort of have to try to find stuff from that sort of five-year period that uh, also happens to have composite and uh, all the other, you know, various requirements for the Apple II. It's a tough challenge. If you did an FPGA implementation, you could you'd probably have like a one frame lag or buffer, but you could capture the 15 kilohertz data coming in, and then you could like basically upscale it to fit. And if you had a widescreen monitor, uh, you could basically just letterbox, you know, make the sides black or something. Sure, yeah. So more on the subject of your 2GS laptop, uh, one of the cool features of it is uh, the built-in compact flash. Uh, so is that, did you use like a CFFA oh, yeah. 3000 for that? Or it wouldn't have been the 3000 back then, but did you use a CFFA for that or? Oh, <laughs> I remember I bought something online. Uh, that's all I remember. It fit into an expansion <laughs> slot. Okay, yeah. Oh, gosh. That is That was like a million projects ago. Yeah, we're dredging up uh, ancient history here. So, yeah, it looks like in the pictures that it was probably a CFFA, but I just wanted to make yeah, sure. Yeah, and I, I know I had to wire it sideways to make it fit. And I can't remember if I had that exp- – I have another 2GS in my shop I, I need to do something with. Well, I should say I have the motherboard and the RAM expansion. But I always thought that was a really neat computer. Uh, we, I played that a lot in high school. It had, like that, it had some cool games on it. I know it was kind of – I don't want to say a flop, but wasn't really – didn't really make a huge dent in the Apple world, but it was a neat little computer. It's an odd machine. I mean, yeah, the fans of it are extremely devoted, and the non-fans of it uh, haven't heard of it. So it's one of those uh, weird little cult computers. Was it expensive when it came out? I know that's kind of a silly question with Apple, but... It, yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, it was more expensive, I think, than like an Amiga or an Atari ST, and it also came out a it little... It was? I think so, yeah. Oh, 
oh, well, there's your problem. Yeah, well, and it also came out a little later and it was a little slower. And if the conspiracy theorists in the community uh, are fond of this theory. So there is a theory that uh, it was intentionally crippled so as not to compete with the Mac. But then that begs the question, why, why release it at all? But uh, yeah, it's a funny machine with a funny history. And it was kind of the very tail end of the uh, of the line. Yeah, because that was like, what, 86, 87? 86. Okay, so the Amiga and the Apple Atari SD were out at that time. And those were like, what, around 1100 or $1,200? I'm sure the Atari was like made cheaply. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the Amiga had 68,000 in it, whereas the 2GS had, you know, this kind of barely 16-bit technically on paper CPU running in, you know, a paltry 2.8 megahertz. And so it was pretty crippled in a lot of ways. And then it had the 2E compatibility, which forced the bus down to 1 megahertz whenever you're touching video memory or various other systems. So... Yeah, it was, it had, the machine it had amazing potential, but it had a bit of a boat anchor on it as well, which, you know, these limits could all be worked around with really clever programming, but. I was playing Super Castlevania 4 a couple months ago on the Super Nintendo, and uh, it had some slowdown. And, I, you know, I remember, you know, slowdown was kind of the big joke with the uh, Super Nintendo. So, anyway, I was, look, I was looking at the processor, and I'm like, it only has an 8-bit data bus, even though it's a 16-bit <laughs> chip. I couldn't believe that. So I'm not surprised. Yeah, it's it's sort of Western Design Center's answer to the 68008, you know, when you want those 16-bit instructions, but you don't want to have to run all the extra wires for the address and data bus. It's sort of a way to compromise. Apple only ran a few print ads for that machine, and, and most of them didn't even mention the word Apple 2GS in the ad anywhere. It just had a picture of, of it and what it could do. Uh, you know, the 2E had been selling well into the educational market, and we could just sell these 2GSs in, into that and uh, maybe hold on to that for a little bit longer. And that's why, that way it's not competing with the Mac. And uh, because most of the schools that bought it just use them as fast Apple 2Es anyway. So, right. Yeah. The 2E, that was the, uh, like the flat white one. Is that correct? No, that's the 2C. Okay. Which was the, like the beige one, like the ubiquitous one? That would have been the 2E. That was the, by far the most popular of the two lines. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I uh, I graduated high school in 1994, and we were still using them in 1994 uh, in computer class. I remember they were still operational. Of course, back then, I guess more time has passed since that than the computer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it's been, it's, that was 20 years ago, and at that time, that computer would have only been, what, 17 years old? Mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> The 2E, they sold, they sold new at retail up until 1993. Wow, that's insane. Yeah, the, the Apple II line had an amazing run. I mean, far longer than any, you know, particular version of the Mac architecture or anything like that. Of course, back then, you know, a change was a little bit slower, so a particular architecture could be useful for a lot longer. But uh, yeah, the Apple II had an amazing run. It's funny to look back at those computers, like um, like the ZX Spectrum is another interesting one, like... Any any game you can think of was ported to that, like well into the nineties. It's insane. Like Street Fighter Two was ported to the <laughs> Spectrum. Wow. Yeah. So and you know, as you mentioned, the Apple II was you know obviously even older, seventy seven, right? Yeah. And what's amazing is that the architecture remained basically unchanged for that whole period. I mean, you know, they did some tricks to shoehorn another sixty four k of RAM into it, and they added some you know fancier video modes with again basic tricks. But uh, yeah, the fundamental architecture of the machine it was it was nineteen seventy seven technology fundamentally all the way into the nineties. <laughs> so it's you know all the way into the nineties there were still games with that 
wacky six bit six color artifact video and you know all the rest of it like oregon trail wasn't there i remember on the so i had an atari 800 when i was a kid because we would have never been auto afford an apple and it had it used well it, it didn't have to use artifacting but it's high resolution mode which was like 320 by 240 if if you put pixels side by side or i'm sorry if you gap the pixels you would get artifacting and whether or not you're on the even or odd line, you'd get either – I think it was like greenish or cyan. But then I remember um, – I believe the PAL and versus NTSC, the artifacting would flip. And also if you had an older version of the machine, it would flip as well. So if the Apple II was using the same kind of artifacting, how do they prevent like you know grass from looking like blood or something? Or, or was it because they always had the same monitors so it never changed? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. It uh, they did manage to maintain a consistent uh, set of artifact colors throughout the uh, the entire line and oh, across okay. different regions. But yeah, I'm not honestly sure the details of of how some of that worked. An artifact um, color would cut your horizontal resolution what effectively half. Yeah, exactly. So if you wanted to achieve any kind of real colors, that's why, in fact, the double high res mode, your horizontal resolution uh, was 140 as opposed to it was 280 in the normal, quote, high res mode. Uh, but that 280 wasn't really 280 because if you wanted to have a solid block of certain colors, you lost half your resolution effectively. So, yeah, yeah. it's a funny numbers game. Uh, but so ostensibly, the double high res mode is 16 colors on any pixel, but it's only 140 pixels wide. And then there's all the craziness where they literally every other column of pixels is mapped into a different bank of memory so you literally have to flip memory back and forth to draw a horizontal line and yeah it's oh brother it, it gets yeah it gets crazy real fast because of course they didn't have any addressing space for all the extra video memory that was going to be needed to be fair if you had the commodore 64 or the atari 800 you know they actually had colors you can map and change but it was two bits per pixel and it made the pixels wider. So if you have any sort of like four-color mode on those, you're, you drop down to 160 horizontal pixels as well, which is also all the faster that NTSC can even change colors. So it didn't really matter. Back then, it was enough, you know, for games. So yeah, nobody was complaining at the time. Yeah, joystick only had one button, and we liked it. <laughs> That's right. We played games uphill in the snow both ways. Yep. So, so uh, uh, one of the things that really stands out about your projects is just the sort of level of polish on the manufacturing of them. Uh, so I'm looking at pictures of your 2GS laptop here, and you know, the even for you know, one of your earlier projects, uh, you know, the, the edges are all nice and clean and the materials are nice. So can you talk a little bit about your kind of your manufacturing process, what materials you use, what tools you use, that sort of thing? Sure. At my shop, I have three major tools that I use. I have a CNC machine, which is used to mill materials. You can like put sheets of material on it and it will cut patterns and concavities. I also have a laser cutter, mm. which is a well, I guess it's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? <laughs> and that's really that's that's really good for making um, highly detailed things. If you want to have a good resolution, like laser cutter can cut with like twelve hundred dots per inch resolution. So if you want text that looks nice, you can put in material. You can actually use the laser to raster and cut the text, and then also cut the material out. So it can you know it can score the surface of things, and it can also cut through things. And I've always wanted to put a pizza in it. But I haven't, <laughs> and my my warranty expired a year ago. I want to say so. It's been a year now where I should have put a pizza into it. You know what? I need to clean that thing anyway. It's kind of dirty. I should cook the pizza or cut a pizza with it and then clean it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that that needs to happen. It's like microwaving a bowl of soup with the lid off before cleaning your microwave. It's like, well, <laughs> 
Who cares, right? <laughs> uh, anyway, and then another tool that I use, and I has, I have a couple of 3D printers. And in the case of the Apple One replica, I think I made the keys with the 3D printer. Yes, I made the keys with the 3D printer and also the hinges. And I also had this jig where I would print the keys in white plastic, white ABS, 3D print them. Then I would spray paint them with black enamel. Then I stuck them in my laser and used the laser to etch the letters in them. So I was pretty proud of that process. That actually is really cool. Yeah. So the the thing that I find is, you know, use the different machines for what they're best at. Like a CNC machine is good for making large volumes of uh, precise pieces. So like the the casing of the Apple replica was done using black Sintra, which is a high density PVC foam. I, foam isn't really accurate. I mean, it's very dense compared to foam, but that's technically what it is. So the, you know, the large machine can use its bits and like carve that out and make pieces that look nice. And unlike a 3D printer where you have to build it up, you know, you can make large things quickly. Then the laser printer, or I'm sorry, laser well, I guess, yeah, it is a printer. It's basically a network printer, which is really cool. If you want to make like a nice wood inlay or make a nice wood plate or text, it's really good at cutting precise pieces of wood. You know, because a CNC machine, you're limited to the size of the bit. Whereas a laser, well, technically the laser has a width. It's like 0. 0.00. It's like about two thousandth of an inch, which sometimes you have to take into account, but not usually. So if you want to do really fine work, you can use the laser for that. And the nice thing about the laser is... It's not physical. It's a laser. So you don't have to worry about pushing things around or moving things. You just literally set things in it and they get cut. Oh, is that right? holds them in place. Yeah. Yeah. Because this laser beam just comes down and cuts them. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> I never thought about that. But yeah, that's neat. Yeah. It's the same thing when they use a plasma cutter on like metal or a metal laser. The metal just sits there usually and it gets hit with a laser. So I find that using multiple different tools can achieve the best results. When I do you know smaller projects... If I'm making, I don't know, some sort of Raspberry Pi portable or something, I'll usually use the 3D printer to make a more complex volumetric case for it. You know, a little beyond what a CNC machine can do. But then I'll use the laser cutter to make like nice looking end caps because 3D printers look good. You know, they can make good looking stuff, but they don't always make like a good front visible surface. But the laser is really good at that. So I like to use multiple tools and then combine them for a finished look. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, that's a good way to put it. So and lots of hot glue. Yeah, lots of hot glue. <laughs> so now some of those tools are recent acquisitions though, right? How did you get by without uh, some of those fancier things? Like in say for the 2GS laptop, that was in 2008, right? So did you mm-hmm. did you have all those same tools at the time or did you uh, No, I didn't, but I would just go elsewhere and have it done. So I would pay to have it done before oh, I had okay. my own equipment. But then I bought my own equipment. So now I can now I have a CNC machine and I can set things on it and use it as a table. <laughs> you know, there's other things I, I still don't have. Like I don't have a metal laser, nor would I ever buy one because I don't think I could afford it. Mm, yeah. uh, but, you know, it's it's if you know people that have one or companies that have one, you can subcontract it out. Although one thing that's kind of tricky is other companies don't want to deal with you because if they can't make a thousand of something, they don't care. Right. And that's, that's an obstacle. I don't know if it's as bad as it used to be because, you know, you have things like Shapeoku or Shapeways and all these services that exist now. So it's not that hard to get into. Oh, and in hackerspaces, obviously, you know, they usually have tons of tools uh, that you can, that you can use. So it's getting, it's getting better. And, you know, 3D, 3D printers are all the rage and they are awesome. I, I have like three of them, but they can't do everything. So it's, it's about picking the best tool for the job, which sounds like a really generic thing to say, but you know. Yeah, that's very true. I've, so I'm working on a uh, 
project with my Apple IIc where I'm building kind of a, a lid for it. And uh, so it's about, you know, 12 inches square and, and uh, kind of a shell. And uh, I tried to 3D print it with Shapeways and uh, it actually, they said they couldn't print it. It was uh, coming out warped, uh, I guess, because of the large sort of surface that isn't very thick. Uh, they said they, it's a... It was, you said it was 12 inches in one dimension? That's a very large 3D print. Yeah. It, it is. It's right, right at the limit of what Shapeways will print. I'm actually surprised they would even try to print anything remotely that big, to be honest. Yeah, they have certain materials and certain colors where they'll, I think their maximum volume is is, uh, about 14 inches cubed, but uh, yeah, something like that. They could only print this in white and only in a couple of materials, but they gave it a college try and fortunately uh, was too big for for that. It was worth a try. So uh, on the subject of, you mentioned 3D printing for hinges, I'm actually, this might be a little bit inside baseball, but I'm actually interested in your hinges. That's a kind of a difficult thing to make for a laptop because, of course, it has to be easy to open but then stay, you know, at any position you put it in. How do do you make your hinges? Do you have a couple designs that you use or? The hinges I used on the replica were left over from uh, Xbox 360 laptop I designed a couple years ago. And that was actually one of the first things I made when I got my uh, MakerBot back in 2012. They're not necessarily a friction hinge. They basically, you just use a screw and you put them through and then they open up to a certain distance and they stop. So they're not, well, actually they are pretty stiff, but they aren't like something like a laptop where you can open it, you know, whatever degree you want and it'll stay in place. I see. But they they do work pretty good. I can send you the 3D files if you'd like. Okay. Yeah, that'd be fun. We can share them uh, them in our show notes. Uh, yeah, I've been trying to buy friction hinges for this purpose, and it's tough to find ones that are uh, weak enough. <laughs> you know, when you buy friction hinges, they're presumably intended yeah, for... Yeah, they're usually at least eight pounds. Yeah they're, yeah, they're intended for like cabinet doors and stuff, things that are much heavier than a laptop lid. Uh, so there are some... Things ad- that involve a lot of le- a leverage, exactly. literally, yeah. to open. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because if, yeah, yeah. If, if, if you try to undo a friction hinge by hand, you can't. Yes. I mean, you can maybe, yeah, because it requires a lever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you try to move them with just your thumbs, it seems like, yeah, it won't move. And there are some adjustable ones, actually, but they tend to be kind of bulky. So uh, it's tough to find just the right thing for hinges. Yes. I also design my own chip clip because that's kind of like a rite of passage with 3D printers. Your own, I'm sorry, chip clip? Chip clip. Yeah, you got to make a chip clip for the bag of <laughs> chips. <laughs> Okay. Crisps, if you're British. <laughs> uh, oh, right. The the like a spring clip that you use to hold the bag closed. Uh, okay. I always thought that they were too difficult. It's like, oh my gosh, it takes like a, a it takes thought to put on this chip clip. So I made kind of like this inverse spring thing. I mean, it doesn't use a metal spring; it's off plastic. But uh, it's on uh, Thingiverse. If you want to check it out, I was dialing in a printer. I I, I got a new printer, and I was trying to dial it in. And so I was printing things over and over and over. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to be printing things over and over and over, they don't have to be perfect. I think I would create a bunch of chip clips. So I just, <laughs> I designed one and then I, I think I gave most of them to my friends, but I have one at, at here. Because the thing is, you don't have to squeeze it. You basically just stick it on. It's kind of hard to explain. I think I got you. Yeah, because the, the rolled up plastic bag kind of expands and holds the clip in place. Is that the idea? Yeah, kind of like that. But it seems to work pretty good. I, I use it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I use uh, binder clips for that, those black things with the little silver Oh, yeah, that seems like a pretty simple solution. (laughs) (laughs) Those things are great. I use them for attaching and clamping things all over the house. Half my life is binder clips. Do you have any uh, sort of changing gears a little bit now? Do you have any particular history with the Apple II? You mentioned that you used them to play games in high school. Anything else that uh, comes to mind? 
Well, I didn't, you know, I didn't just play games with them. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly school. Uh, You know, uh, I'm old enough that when I, well, I guess there's still apples in schools, but uh, everything was like an old apple. As I mentioned, even in high school, we were using the two E's in computer class. Yeah. I do remember when I was a senior, I took computer two. I basically took computer classes just to increase my GPA. So I guess I used apples for that. I would, yeah, I would, yeah, I remember this now. I would, uh, I would write the program in like five minutes or whatever. And then I would spend the rest of the period playing SimCity <laughs> on the Macintosh. So that was pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Mike, I'm uh, monopolizing the conversation here. You have any questions for Ben? Oh, I had a comment first and then a question. The comment is there's this Monty Python skit called Pet Conversions where John Cleese walks into a pet shop and he wants a cat and Michael Palin offers him a terrier and he says, no, I want a cat. And Palin says, well, I can, you know, I'll, I'll let its legs down, take its snout out, stick a few wires through its cheeks. And there you have a lovely cat. And it goes kind of <laughs> back and forth. And so sort of uh, turning these, turning like uh, when somebody has a 2GS sitting there and they look across the room and they see this laptop and there's a certain psychology that goes, you know, I'm going to turn this into that. And that's always sort of fascinated me. We've talked a lot about the cases and, and how beautiful they are and the attention to detail and polish that you put in your projects. And it's undeniably gorgeous. Um, as far as though the electronics, obviously you're going to be, ha- you're going to have to reconfigure boards and, and cut and sometimes. Yeah. What's the process there? Do you have to like remanufacture pieces? Cause when you cut into a PCB, you're going to be cutting traces and things like that. How, what goes on there? I'm trying to remember how I did it with the Apple two GS. I guess I don't remember exactly how I did it with that, but I will tell you what process I would use. Sure. Um, you'd look at you'd look at the uh, motherboard, and then you realize what you absolutely need. Uh, you know, if you're modifying something that runs off batteries or it runs off a modern screen, there might be portions of the PCB you don't even need, which means you can omit them completely. You can cut traces as long as you don't use what it's connected to. If you do cut traces or you have to bend it or circuit bend it, you can uh, always rewire them. Uh, I got. Uh, Another 8-bit computer that maybe is a <laughs> on, on your on your hit list, but was the TRS-80 <laughs> Model 100, that portable white computer from like 1983. Yeah. So anyway, I got one off eBay or whatever, and I was like, oh, yeah, this thing's awesome. But I had to go in, and there's some corrosion on the keyboard, so I had to go in. So even if there are broken traces, you can, you can patch them up. You can add little wires or little snippets of solid wire and fix it, so... That's not really a challenge. So if it's, if it's something that uh, you, tr- you try to make something that fits the size of it. So if you've got a 2GS motherboard, for instance, which is fairly large, I would say, and you're like, okay, well, this motherboard is kind of shaped like a screen, so I'm going to rotate it, you know, sideways. Oh, now it's, you know, wider than it is tall. So this gives me like a baseline. Oh, and my screen is, I don't know, 12 inches. So yeah, that that's about the same size as the motherboard. So yeah, this this is kind of the size of what I'm going to build. You know, the the shape of what you have kind of dictates it. And I also like to use uh, original hardware whenever possible. You could just recreate this stuff in FPGA, but it's fun to have kind of like the I don't know, the romanticism of using the original parts and you know, bringing them into the present. And that's why I like making the custom cases. It's it's kind of like, you know, what would this look like if it had been built back then? Like I did a Atari 800 laptop and it's all beige and the colors are really ugly, but it, it <laughs> looks like it, you know, belongs in the 70s. Right. Yep. So part of it, I, half the battle really, it's all about nostalgia. It's like, oh, this reminds me of that time. You know, I, I, have, a, I have a feeling toward like, oh, this 
it, you know, it reminds me of my youth. It reminds me of how those things looked. Oh, look, it has these certain colors. It's dingy and beige. It has all these pointless vent holes that you didn't really need. Uh, it's all about like, you know, bringing that back and honoring that the era, but also, you know, putting a new spin on it. And of course, curved rounded corners. I mean, if you look at that stuff now, like you've like a, a like a Sega Genesis, there's all this like black ribbing and grooves mm-hmm. on it. And like all it did was look cool and collect dust. It had no <laughs> function. Maybe it made the case sturdier, but who cares? All the plastic was textured back then. That was insane. I can't replicate that, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, there, there was definitely a an era of electronics there where everything had to have ridges and reliefs and things on the surface that was supposed to look high tech or something. But yeah, it was just maddening because it all collected dust. Well, it was a, it was an industrial design trend. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you see that. Apple starts a lot of industrial design trends. They pretty much start all of them in computing. <laughs> you know, things. you go from one thing. Yeah, I remember like in the late 90s when everything was like uh, neon colored. Like, oh, it's a translucent neon colored whatever because yeah. of the uh, iMac. Yeah. And, you know, and then everything was white. And then I think, what are we on now? We're on everything's black, I believe. <laughs> black is the new black. It's <laughs> industrial design. I kind of like the brushed aluminum thing that was kind of – that was that was hot right after – neon and then before apple white yeah i think we're still sort of there everything is kind of an aluminum slab now and i think aluminum slab plus chamfered edges and black or white shiny plastic i think seems to be where we're at now yeah i have a ultra book that's uh yeah it's a a black aluminum brush slab so it's pretty much exactly what you're saying yes (laughs) exactly I like designing in lighter colored materials because they're easy to see when I'm working on them and they mm-hmm. photograph well. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, you have to make something – if something like says, oh, it has to be like glossy black, then I'll do it. But usually I, I like lighter colors. Yeah. I'm looking through the different projects that you've done here and it, it looks like most of these are either one-time commissions or one-off things. Um, so is, is this – is this just mostly you're doing this because you, you can and it's a challenge and you're having a good time or – or are you making enough money off of these one-time things? That's how, how you're paying for all of this. So it, it used to be that I, I would build things for customers. You know, people like, hey, I really want a portable Commodore 64. I want a portable Xbox, blah, blah, blah. And I would, you know, build the same thing over and over. Lately anymore, uh, we spend quite a bit of time on the Ben Heck show. So if we do build something that's usually on the show, it's like, hey, APIC computers, let's try to replicate the Apple One. So we kind of build things for the show, if that okay. makes sense. I still I still do projects for people, not as much as I used to. Like individuals, I do a lot of things with accessibility. I uh, like I'm making a, all these batches of accessibility controllers for people who don't have full facility of their hands to play modern games, which are really complicated. Uh, so I tend to do things more like that. It's one of those things like it's just the irony. Like as you get older, you get busier, and you have more money to build this stuff, but you don't have the time. Or the machines. Like, I, I kind of wonder, like, 10 years ago, what I would do if I had the machines I, I have now. I'd probably be like, woohoo. But now <laughs> it's like, oh man, I don't have time to build all this stuff. And like, the time it takes to make something custom, it eats up a lot of time to make one custom thing. Like, if, if you can't make 10 or 20 or 50 of something, it's really not worth the effort. But if we can do it, you know, on the show, kind of as a, you know, a demonstration or a basically as entertainment, then it's worth it. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so this Apple One project, then how many hours would you say you, you have invested in, you know, start to finish from, from thinking, Hey, I could do this to putting it together on the show for people? Oh, that one, that one wasn't too bad. I don't know. Maybe like 
I don't know, 20 hours, oh, maybe okay. 25. No, uh, it, it's a very simple, even though I wired it by hand, it's a very simple system. It's uh, 6502, RAM, ROM, addressing chips, some sort of video. Swish, done. I actually, I for, this is kind of geeky, but I had a lot of fun uh, <laughs> creating the ROM image for it. <laughs> I really enjoyed that, like the WAS monitor that fits in 256 bytes. First of all, I was like, oh my God, how, you know, WAS is a god to do this. <laughs> and, but it was like, I was like, okay, I put this here. What would that be? FF00 through FFFF. And then, oh, if I want the basic, that would sit here in memory. And, uh, yeah, I, I really had fun. What I did was, um, obviously, you can't find a 256-byte ROM nowadays or EEPROM, but I had a 32-kilobyte EEPROM. So I'm like, okay, let's see. Uh, this would be at the second half of memory, and then we put all the RAM at the bottom. And if I'm not mistaken, I would think the original Apple had some RAM at the beginning and some RAM at the end because you could load BASIC into it. I can't picture the memory map off the top of my head. But it was kind of fun, basically, like – going backwards from FFFF in the address space and figuring out where to put everything. Like, oh, I had to put the cassette adapter here. I have to leave a hole for the peripheral interface adapter because that was like at 6,000 hex. Yeah, that part I enjoyed. It was like kind of putting together a, a hex puzzle. It's funny what you mentioned about the memory. Uh, it's it's almost hard to buy chips that small nowadays. Uh, I did my own uh, retro yeah. computer design a while back, and uh, I had that same thing where the smallest EEPROM I could find uh, was 32K, and I only needed 4K of ROM. So there's literally 4K of code sitting at the top of this 32K ROM when, of course, back at the time, people would have killed for uh, for that much ROM. Yeah, they would have killed for 32K of RAM, too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which is also about the... But, you know, you can still buy it. You know, you can still buy parallel RAM and and EEPROMs and yeah. yeah, it's fun. So, uh, so sort of related to what Mike was asking about. So, of course, uh, I'm a big fan of the Ben Heck show, uh, but of course, in a, that sort of 20 minute format, it's hard to get into a lot of detail. So, do you have a like a place on your website somewhere where people can look at the schematics and you know the hex files and so on and see some of the gorier details? So uh, we take our project files and we put them on the Element 14 community. Okay. Because the main goal of the show is to drive the community and the website. So that's where we put our files. Okay. Uh, for instance, we we just did one on FPGA and uh, the editor, Allison, she's like, oh my gosh, we could have made like two episodes out of this. So she's like, I'm going to condense this and this and this. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. She's like, filming me typing code into a computer is... <laughs> It's like all these Hollywood movies where they have these scenes involving hackers and computers. Like, this is not interesting. Yeah. Uh, so what we do is, like, instead of, like, showing me type everything into the computer, we make that very brief. And then we just make the code available online because that's all people want anyway. Right. So cool. Yeah. That's kind of how we handle that. But, yeah, we usually make all the files available. So I, I don't care. <laughs> cool. Yeah, we'll definitely link to that in the, in the show notes. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, these projects, the end result is cool, but ninety probably 95% of the process of building it is not good television. <laughs> it's like an iceberg, yeah. <laughs> you, you, film, you, film about, you film about 10% and the other 90% is like the cursing and swearing and kicking things. Well, it's not that bad, but I think you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. The, what's that, like 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration? That's right, yeah. That's... Definitely one of the best axioms of all time. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we can't film everything because we'd have so much footage, it would be impossible to edit through in a, in a week. And it would be pointless because, you know, we'll have like, okay, here's how I wire this. Now I have to do it 20 more times off camera. <laughs> That's usually <Yeah>. what happens. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, well. <laughs> cool. So uh, I don't think our audience would forgive me if I didn't ask, but uh, the 2GS laptop is a bit of a holy grail for a lot of people, especially uh, regular attendees of Kansas Fest, the annual Apple II conference. And uh, it says, and of course, on your website that you won't be building any more of them. But uh, is there any chance of ever building any more of those? <laughs> well, sure. If someone gave me enough money, I'd do it. <laughs> Uh, I guess like, I mean, I, like I mentioned, I have another Apple, uh, 2GS motherboard laying around my shop and an extra RAM expansion. So yeah, maybe someday I could build one. Uh, you know, I, I tend to be working on other things. My workflow is not quite what it used to be. It's not, well, that, that sounds like I'm lazy. It's not the same. I mean, I'm always working. I mean, I, as soon as I get done with this, I'm going to go right, right back to working on my SD card routines, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe someday. I want to see an Apple three yeah. uh, laptop. Oh, keep your Apple now, three nonsense out of this podcast. Mike. Was Apple three and Lisa two different things? Yes. Uh, okay. The Apple three came out in 1980 and it was sort of the, at first it was going to replace the Apple two line and then it became the stopgap until they could get Lisa out the door. Um, the Apple II, Apple three is more of an extension of Apple II technology, sort of a superset. The Lisa was the let's let's make this GUI. We'll put the Motorola chip in there, and then uh, Macintosh was the effort to make that smaller and more affordable. Oh, okay. Now I know. So I was saying how the two GS is a bit of an odd duck. Well, the Apple three makes the Apple two GS look like the IBM PC. Well, <laughs> the Apple I've three. Seen, I've seen many Apple two GSs. I don't think I've. I might have seen an Apple II or Apple III once. Heck, I think I've seen Apple Pippin more than I've seen an Apple III. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the oddest of odd duck computers. But uh, Oh, I have a friend who bought a, awesome. uh, a Newton PDA, like not back in the day, but like, you know, decades later off eBay. It was kind of cool. Yeah, I actually at the time bought a Newton PDA. I was in university at the time and uh, I spent far too much money that I did not have on that thing because I was very excited about it. And it was probably one of the worst things I ever bought. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Yeah, I, I, you could definitely appreciate what they tried to do, but yeah, the technology was definitely not there. You know, it, it needed to be the iPhone, and it was just, it was ten years too soon for it, or fifteen years, I guess, too soon for it. You should have got a Trash eighty model one hundred. <laughs> you can still talk RS two three two. It's amazing. Yeah, that thing has a real call following as well. I know that uh, one of our retro computing luminaries, Earl Evans, is a big fan of that. And uh, yeah, it's it's actually still quite popular. That thing. It was a great little machine. Yeah, I'm glad that I bought one. And I guess they they started going up in price because it was on that Halt and Catch Fire TV show. Yeah, we practically have a Halt and Catch Fire segment on this show. They uh, always talking about tangentially related uh, topics, and we like to pick apart the historical accuracies and inaccuracies, uh, like the nerds that we are. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't say I've ever seen it. I know that sounds sacrilegious. It's good? It, I wouldn't say you're missing a lot. Uh, we like to talk about it just because of the uh, subject matter, but as a dramatic show, I wouldn't say it has a, a whole lot going for it. Uh, I don't honestly know if it's even going to come back for season two. It's better as computer history than actually as scripted drama. Yeah, I would say it's fun as kind of a nostalgic uh, time machine. It's fun to see the 80s computers in the background and the 80s clothes and cars and so on, but uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily succeeding as scripted drama, no. Oh, so it basically rides on its nostalgia? So far, yeah. And this is all just my opinion of it, but uh, I haven't been very impressed with the actual... Oh, uh, in that case, I probably wouldn't be very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's become sort of an exercise in try to spot your favorite vintage computer on the show. Oh. Pretty much, yeah. 
Well, you know, I, I kind of thought the same thing. Like all my see all my friends who are married and have kids are like, oh, you got to see Wreck It Ralph. It's got all this video game stuff in it. I'm like, oh god, it's just giving me a bunch of references to video games that I perfectly <laughs> I remember quite well. I don't need a movie to remember them for me. But then when I watched it. It had some of that, but you know, I was pleasantly surprised. Well, maybe I'll if I'm really, really bored, maybe I'll watch Halt and Catch Fire. But I have like fifty thousand other Netflix shows I'm supposed to get through first, <laughs> according to people. <laughs> some of that retro stuff does genuinely turn out to be good. Yeah, Wreck It Ralph and uh, the other one. What's the other one with us? Uh, uh, something or others? The dude that saves the world. Oh, Scott Pilgrim. Yes, versus Scott. The yes, world? Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Thank you. Yeah, those two movies are actually quite good as movies. In addition yeah, to the uh, shameless plugs of video game, he wasn't saving the world. He was versus the world. Right. Yes. Thank you. Oh, but what about the Adam Sandler movie that's coming out this year? Pixels. Oh, I haven't Have heard, you about, heard that about that. One? No. It's. I think it's basically a ripoff of a Futurama episode. Futurama is like the modern Twilight Zone for like getting ideas from. It's like aliens intercept broadcasts from Earth of like Donkey Kong and Space Invaders, and they think they're war tapes, so they attack Earth using like things that look like old video. Ah, oh, hmm. it's, uh, it's going to be total nostalgic <laughs> trash. <laughs> okay. Sounds like Galaxy Quest. Yes, except for Galaxy Quest was an amazing film. That's true. Now, Galaxy Quest is secretly one of the best Star Trek movies. Absolutely. <laughs> Just like Star Fox is one of the best Star Wars games. <laughs> no, correction, it is the best Star Wars game. <laughs> uh, now we're really off topic. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to cover? Where can people find you on the web and, and in the internet spaces and things like that? <sighs> on the intertubes. Okay. Uh, you can go to www.element14.com forward slash TBHS. That's the Ben Heck show. Uh, you can also find it on YouTube. I also have my own personal YouTube channel, which I rarely update, which is benheck.com, I think, spelled out. It's very strange. It's always annoying when I go to websites and Ben Heck is already taken. <laughs> Although last night I was at opencores.org and I tried to log in. I'm like, what bleep hole took Ben Heck? And then I'm like, oh, wait, it's it was me. I just forgot my password. <laughs> <laughs> Steam, though. Someone on Steam has Ben Heck. That I had to be Ben underscore Heck. <laughs> anyway, back to topic. Uh, also, you can follow me on Twitter at BenHeck.com. All one word. And, of course, my website, www.BenHeck.com. Awesome. Well, we will link to all of that in the show notes. Super. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Ben. Yeah, we really appreciate no you problem. having you on the show. It's been great. Yeah, it's been fun taking a trip down memory lane. All right. Well, that uh, that was a great interview. Thank you, Quinn, for handling uh, a lot of the, the tough technical stuff. Um, you know, when we were preparing for that, I wasn't really sure what I was going to ask him because I don't know enough about um, things like industrial design, and especially when you're kind of re-engineering somebody else's industrial design, and then to feel like I could ask intelligent questions. And so I appreciate you stepping in and covering all that. <laughs> oh, not at all. I had the opposite problem, honestly. I, if uh, if you could have spared enough time, I would have made it a five-hour interview just because uh, as, a, yeah. as, as a fellow hacker, builder, maker type person, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of his. And uh, there was tons and tons of stuff I would have loved to have asked him. But uh, <laughs> alas, he's a, he's a busy chap. So uh, we had to stay focused on Apple II. Fame and celebrities and all that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's talk about some news, Mike. Sounds good to me. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. All 
right, so I'm looking at our handy-dandy spreadsheet here, and it looks like you have the first item, Quinn. I do. Tell me about Bill Budge. Yeah, I love talking about Bill Budge. Of course, he's a legend in the community. I don't think he needs any introduction. One of his more famous products was Pinball Construction Set. And now Bill Budge was... He was, I guess, what nowadays we would call a tools programmer more than a game programmer. Uh, you know, at the time, that distinction wasn't really clear yet, but uh, there's sort of two two kinds of, of game programmers. There's people that build games, and then there's people that build tools for other people to build games. And there's a definite division there. You either, you know, you're sort of passionate about one or the other. Most people are are passionate about engines and tools or passionate about building games. So uh, I think uh, Bill maybe falls into the uh, tools side of things because he used to talk a lot about in interviews about how he liked to build things that enabled people to build their own types of games. So Pinball Construction Set was one of his first major forays into that type of thing. He used to talk about, I remember in an interview, he had talked famously that his holy grail was a construction set construction set. You know, he wanted to, <laughs> uh, to try and build the ultimate tool set that would let you build other tools. And uh, it, that was quite a, actually a visionary idea in, you know, in the 1980s. I think nowadays that has basically been achieved with, you know, things like Unity and so on, these sort of very general game engines that we have now. But uh, in any case, uh, the point of all this is that the pinball construction set source code has now been released. Now, before you get too excited, it is the Atari version, Blue Atari. But uh, <laughs> what's interesting about it is, now as far as I know, the Apple II source has not been released, but it may also be out there. So forgive me if I'm wrong about that. Uh, but what's interesting about the Atari version, Blue Atari, is that the uh, Apple II was actually used in the build process. So there's some scripts that actually use the Apple II ROM monitor uh, as part of the building of it. I guess, you know, he probably used whatever he was comfortable with and being, you know, originally an Apple II programmer, when it came time to port it to the Atari, he probably just, you know, kind of built on what he had for tools. But uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, neat to see. So we will definitely link to that in the show notes. You know, I that seems I have memories, vague, haunting memories, I guess, of reading about a lot of developers, and I, I guess maybe there was um, some real similarities between the Atari and the Apple II uh, on that level when you're designing, because it seemed to be a common thing, not prevalent, but certainly um, a noticeable minority of Apple II developers would uh, they would develop on the Atari and then compile it over the Apple II uh, because it was an easy translation. I'm not sure you, know, you, you had to obviously redo the graphics to, to fit Waz's wonky designs for that. But um, so that seemed to be a, a standard thing to do. That doesn't actually surprise me that much. Uh, I think yeah, I think that sort of thing, that kind of mixing and matching, is probably a lot more common than we realize now. I think because those '80s computers were all really strong in different areas. Uh, I think that was probably pretty common to use them for different things. So, you know, the Apple II, of course, had the best, you know, 80-column text and the best disk drives and uh, various other things like that. But then, of course, other machines had much better art tools because they had better graphics. So, you know, people would build the art on one machine and, you know, use another machine for compiling or another machine for, you know, writing documentation or what have you. So I think uh, this, yeah, like I say, this thing was probably more common than, than uh, we realized 
of the time. So it's neat to kind of get a little bit of a, a window into that. Yeah. And we have to remember how interesting it is that they even did the development on these machines. You know, at the time, these were, you know, microcomputers. These were small systems. These are what we would today consider a microcontroller, for example. And uh, so if you were, quote unquote, smart and or well-funded, you know, you would do something like what Inf Infocom did, where they had a, you know, deck mini computer that they developed on and they just cross-compiled for these small computers because these small computers didn't have enough, you know, memory and disk and so on to compile and run code uh, on the machine and also, you know, test on the machine. So, you know, that would be equivalent to nowadays either, you know, writing code on a microcontroller for a microcontroller, which, you know, would be silly. Of course, you use your laptop to do that, the actual development. Or uh, on a modern game system, it would be like plugging a keyboard into your Xbox and then running a compiler on your Xbox to develop, you know, an Xbox game, which again is silly. Uh, you would never... Uh, you would never do that. So the fact that uh, people in those days did in fact do that uh, says a lot about how small these operations were and how expensive, I guess, this equipment was for them to, to buy. So pretty neat. Now, uh, stand by for a, a, a smooth segue coming up your way. Um, Quinn, you have something about a particular micro microcontroller board that you can buy right now that would be of interest to our Apple II users. Whew, I need to wipe the sweat off. After wow. That. Yeah. I'm, I'm, Man, I'm, good. I'm glad I moved to the edge of my seat for that one because <laughs> that was almost an actual uh, genuine segue. I know, um, right? Well done. I'm talented. It's a shame we called all this attention to it, though, and ruined it. Oh. <laughs> so uh, I do, in fact, have some news on a subject that everybody's been waiting for and I've been getting asked a lot about, and that's the Western Design Center's 6502-based hobby development boards. They have various names. I think they go by the name Accelerator with an X, and they are also known as the 65XX boards and the uh, SXB boards. They have yeah, various names, but uh, they've been in development for seemingly forever, and I showed an early prototype at Kansas Fest in 2014, and they are now finally available for sale. Sort of. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, before, yeah sort of, sort of, unfortunately. Uh, so they are available now on Mouser. I think Jameco might also be listing them, but I'll link to Mouser because that's what I could find. And they are not showing as in stock yet, but they can at least be ordered. So that's genuine progress. What's still unknown is exactly what the tools look like. Uh, last time I looked at them, the prototype tools were sort of some, uh, I have to say, a little bit clunky command line tools for Windows only. Uh, you know, not like the kind of nice GUI tools that you would come to expect with an Arduino or something like that. So uh, I haven't seen the final product, so I'm not going to pass judgment until I do, but uh, you can at least uh, put in a credit card number somewhere and <laughs> and something may happen and you may get a board at some point. So that's progress. In software news, uh, CiderPress, the, the Windows disk image management tool that is completely awesome and we wish we had on Mac, but fortunately we sort of do because it runs under Wine, <gasps> has been ported to or has been updated uh, to version 4.0.0 D1. CiderPress has been out for obviously, I think it's been for, geez, almost 10 years or more now. And as Windows XP and these other technologies are sort of fading into the past and uh, newer stuff's coming around. I think there were some problems with CiderPress with Windows 7 and, and things like that. And Andy McFadden, the author, decided it was time to give it a, a refresh. And he's released uh, 4.0.0 D1. And he says, uh, this is a development release. Um, version 3.0.1 is still the official stable uh, release. From a user perspective, it's feature equivalent to version 3.0.1. But if you are interested, you can go to his website, uh, a2ciderpress.com, and, and download it and play with it. 
Yeah, as a Mac user, I'm very jealous of CiderPress. It's ironic that the best tool for working with dis- Apple II disk images is only available on Windows. Yeah, that's sort of unfortunate, but if you're willing to mess around with WineSkin and, and programs like that, you can get it running, I think, without too much problem. I have it on my um, running on Yosemite on this iMac that I have in front of me right now, and it wasn't very difficult to set up at all. Okay, yeah, I have Parallels, actually, so I should give it a try okay. under that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a big, I'm a big fan of Parallels. Yeah, uh, honestly, I guess I've I've got a at this point I've got a set of command line commands set up using uh, Apple Commander, the Java tool, and uh, it works well enough for basic stuff. But uh, definitely wish I had CiderPress for Reels. <laughs> it certainly um, makes it a lot easier to to deal with that because you can load up your image and see what's on the disk and mess around with it. It's it's good stuff. You should check it out for sure if you don't have it already. Have you received Chris Torrance's new book yet? Quinn? I did. Yes, there was some. Oh, you did. Yeah, there was some possible drama there. Uh, he sent uh, Mike and I a copy of the book, and mm-hmm. yes, thank you so much, Chris. And yeah. uh, I was afraid he had sent it to my home address, uh, the neighborhood I live in. There, things have a tendency to get stolen off the doorstep when the UPS guy leaves them on the step, which they always do if you're not home, it seems. And uh, so I, it had been a while and I haven't received it and I was getting worried. And then uh, Chris let me know that he'd sent it to my office, actually. So when I went into the office the other day to pick up some things while on holiday, it was there waiting for me. So I have it nice. in my hand right now and it is beautiful, I have to say. It is now. He sent us. Did he send you the hard co- the hardcover version? He did. Yeah. It, uh, it sounds like this. I don't have the website up in front of me right now, but I'm, I'm hoping... When I when I use a book like this, it's it's Roger Wagner's assembly lines, you know, and it's it's guides and tutorials and code to help you learn assembly language programming. And when I'm using a book like that to learn, I like to have the Apple in front of me and this thing open next to me so I can reference it while I'm working. And it's sort of difficult to do with a hardback book. I'm hoping that it will be released if if you can get that as a soft cover, that'd be great. And having it on my iPad as an ebook would be even better to just flip back and forth and have it searchable. So fingers crossed for that. Yeah, I, I, I really like having reference books on my iPad for the searching and bookmarking abilities. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, I think my use of this book will actually mostly be as just an interesting nostalgic kind of read and maybe learn a few tips and tricks mm-hmm. about the Apple II. But I am interested in hearing the perspective of someone who is genuinely going to use it to learn assembly language. Uh, because yeah, judging by this John Romero quote on the back cover here. It's apparently very good for that. So um, uh, let me see if I can quote here. Uh, It says, I am not exaggerating when I say I merely read the first few pages in chapter one and all of a sudden assembly language totally made sense to me. Very few times (laughs) in my life have I had such an important event happen to me in a lightning bolt-like form as when I read the first chapter and understood without error exactly how it works. So that's high praise indeed from John Romero. So I'm I'm wondering if you might also have that same lightning bolt-like experience. I wonder if that's from John Romero of old. Uh, well, because I, I would assume that that John Romero of 2014 knows very well Apple assembly language and and wouldn't have grabbed his copy of Chris's release and just suddenly had this revelation when he's had 30 years to. <laughs> yes, I assume. Yeah, I assume that is a vintage quote, possibly from the original edition of the uh, of the book. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, uh, it is honestly, it looks like really a great book for learning. I didn't actually expect that. I thought it was just, you know, I knew it was a collection of the original articles from Soft Talk. So I guess I assumed it would be kind of a mishmash of, you know, pro tips and, uh, hidden sneaky tricks and things like that. Not necessarily like a read it front to back tutorial on programming the Apple II, but it seems like it actually is kind of that. And just flipping through it, it looks like it is quite good for that. So especially in some of the technical, 
areas that are unique to the Apple II, like, you know, high-res graphics and so on, which can be some of the more challenging areas to learn. You know, you can learn 6502 assembly from a thousand different sources, and, you know, it's really not that hard. But then once you try to make the Apple II do something, now, okay, now you have to learn the gnarly memory map and all the other weird tricks and the artifact color and so on. So it does seem to have a lot of that. Unfortunately, of course, the original articles kind of end at the very early part of the Apple IIe, so there's nothing about uh, double high-res graphics or some of the later topics, but still, for what it is, it's pretty remarkable. Roger Wagner, you'll see that he's got a, a great way of communicating this information in a no-nonsense way that makes sense pretty much without a whole lot of work. It is assembly language, so there's there are some um, math hurdles there and things that, that you might have to overcome if you're learning assembly language for the first time, but it's it, it never feels like it's impossible. And I think one of the, the big things that he understood that maybe some of these other early authors didn't was that you're more likely to stick to this and, and actually learn the thing if you're working towards a goal rather than just, oh, let's, here's, here's how we add binary numbers today. And, you know, why am I doing this? So the, the articles sort of build to help you kind of build a program. I think it's a game or something like that. And for me anyway, that's the sort of thing that keeps me coming back to it rather than, than, okay, I'm learning this, but why? I have, you know, no project in mind. What am I doing here? So. For sure. It's very goal oriented. You know, it's not just, here's the weird Apple II high res memory map and, you know, all the strange right. things you have to do to draw a horizontal line or whatever. It's, you want to draw a sprite? Well, let's work towards drawing a sprite that moves around on the screen so that you can maybe actually make a game, which is really what everyone wants to do. So it's great for that. I believe Chris may have recounted this when he was on the show, but I, the rumor was that Roger was basically learning this stuff, you know, a day or two before he wrote the articles because he wanted to learn it as well. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, you yeah. know what they say, the teacher only has to be two days ahead of the students. <laughs> right. So what else we got, Quinn? Uh, let's see. Well, you got some, oh no. Tell me you didn't label these news items woos. I sure did. It's back. It's woos. We talked about this. <laughs> All right. Let's hear your... I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to make it happen, people. All right. Let's hear your woo Come segment. On, go. It's good. <laughs> I'm going to have a jingle next time for it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so um, we mentioned last month that, that Waz was getting a, a reality show and that was going to be based around future tech. And I think... The articles that I went back through and researched earlier this week have all said that the show is going to be named The Waz. That's what they're going to call it. And it's going to be with Carrie Byron from uh, formerly of Mythbusters, which I think is very cool. But I, I don't I don't remember mentioning that last time we talked about it. And I don't know if the articles had been updated later. But for those of you who are listening, the show will be called The Waz and it will be with Carrie Byron of, Myth, of Mythbusters. Cool. Yeah. The last time we talked about it, there was very, very little real information about it. So uh, I think all we had was a photo of Carrie and, and Waz. So uh, that's cool to have a little more information about it. And um, our other woos item, see what I did there? Uh, stop it. <laughs> is that, you know, Waz has been making noises for a long time now that he wants to become an Australian citizen and then move down there and retire with his family. And because of his busy speaking schedule and appearances and things like that, he's still based here in the United States just because a lot of it happens here. And as part of the process of becoming a citizen of Australia is you have to live there a significant portion of time. And that's, that's sort of been difficult for him. But he did get a, another step closer to becoming an Australian citizen. He was granted uh, this week status as, well, not this week, I guess, couple of weeks ago, status as a permanent resident because he is a distinguished person, I guess, because of his accomplishments and things they're willing to extend this this to him. So as Waz gets older and moves closer to retirement, his dream of living down there is going to become reality. 
Cool. Well, and we've all been searching for the perfect was and oz pun and or portmanteau and or gag. And I think that Michael over on the RCR has finally come up with the perfect one. He referred to him as the Wazard of Oz. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I think that wins. That I think hurts. that is the official was Oz pun <laughs> slash portmanteau slash gag. So we can all just agree. He's the Wazard of Oz now. And let's move on. Bill Buckles is a software developer for the Apple II, and it's been a year or two, I think, since we mentioned his some of his previous releases. He's he's uh, come up with some really nifty graphics conversion utilities for the Apple II, turning your old Apple II double high-res pictures into something you can display in your modern machine and back and forth. Uh, well, he has released BMP to DHR 1.0. He's got a, an extensive write-up of it over at his website at appleoldies.ca, and it's pretty uh, pretty impressive the, the the results he's been able to get with this program. Yeah, there's a bit of a I don't know an, I don't want to say competition, but there's a little bit of a, a friendly comp uh, like a friendly competition I guess going on with various converters to uh, double high-res graphics. Uh, I know that uh, Brendan Roberts has also been working on uh, one. Oh possibly tangentially related to Lawless Legends, but there's been some interesting comparisons online of the two different uh, programs and how they approach different types of, of colored images and so on. So it's neat to see, yeah, what can be done. It's I'm surprised at the quality of them. You know, the, some of these images really do look quite good. And in these these threads over at CSA2, Bill has been very open about sharing the you know, information on how he's doing things and the techniques that he's using. I'm still struggling to learn basic assembly language, so some a lot of it's over my head, but a lot of it does make sense. So if you're interested in, in the magic behind how this gets done, I would head over to Compsys Apple II, check out his threads, and check out his webpage. Yeah, and it's really a lot about just understanding color gamuts and you know how to convert from one color space to another and the different techniques there are for doing that and the different techniques for sampling images down from different resolutions and so on. And there's a lot of overlap with like computational photography types of techniques or uh, graphical shader techniques. So uh, it's almost more that kind of challenge, that kind of color and image processing theory challenge than it is specifically about assembly language. So uh, there's definitely some very sophisticated techniques involved in uh, both of these approaches. So it's uh, very educational. And the results are outstanding. They are indeed. Virtual Apple II, the online emulator that you can play in your web browser as opposed to the virtual Apple II emulator that runs on macOS, has been updated. The database has been updated to version 1.28. Bill Martins over at callapple.com has a post where he talks about many new updates. Um, there's programs, and they've included the manual for David Schmenk's plasma-based game Rogue. So check that out. It's good to good to see some some love for Virtual Apple II actually because it's uh, it's such a great little thing. I mean, you know, JSMS lately has been getting a lot of press for emulating retro computers in your browser, and well deserved. It's a really awesome effort and an awesome program. But uh, yeah, Virtual Apple II meanwhile has been quietly letting you run just about every Apple II game ever made, including most two GS games, right there in your browser for a long time now. So uh, it's been great for us to be able to link directly to a lot of the games that we talk about and so on. Why aren't you playing games right now? <laughs> That's right. Well, because they're listening to our amazing show. Oh, I see. Well, they're listening to you anyway. I don't think anyone's listening to me. I'm just here for the Commodore jokes. You know, you know that. Oh, and they, they send hate mail to Mike. At, uh, right. And they're going to say, yes, I, I edited that that little hate fest that you, you and the other three <laughs> put together last month. And uh, just so you know, I heard all that caring to yeah. <laughs> Yes, if only people knew the uh, the unedited uh, 
maybe we'll do a special Apple open Apple <laughs> unplugged <laughs> raw episode one day or something. Oh gosh, you don't want to hear that. Yeah, no. Well, you probably do, but you won't. <laughs> So speaking of games, uh, let's talk about Brian Peachy, everyone's favorite prolific modern Apple II game writer. Uh, he's been he's been plugging away for a while now, producing games. I guess he's been sort of using it as a as a way to learn Apple II assembly language. And in the process, he seems to be learning a lot because he's making some cool little games. And he's recently released the source code for his game Lamb Chops, which I think most of us have probably played by now. It's quite a fun little game. And uh, he released the source code for it. He's cautioned us that it's it was a learning experience, so it may not be the best assembly language code. And I can definitely relate to that. It's very, uh, it's kind of scary to release your code to the public because of course it's easy to criticize other people's code but uh it's <laughs> quite another thing to uh, to sit down and write it yourself so thanks for doing that brian i'm sure lots of people will learn from that the quote on call apple is that uh, with the release of the new assembly lines book i thought i'd share the source code to lamb chops which borrows almost entirely from concepts covered in that book so it seems the the important thing for learning uh, a new language or something, pretty much, I guess, anything with this retro computing stuff that's going to take a while to absorb and, and make progress in is, is have a goal when you're doing this. Definitely, yeah. And set that goal reasonably low. I think a lot of people make that mistake when they're learning to program. You know, they set out to make Ultima 5 and right. you, know, you can't do that. You should set out to make Pong, literally. I mean, set out to make the simplest thing you can because then you'll finish it and you'll feel good about yourself and now you have something you can build on. It's quite demoralizing to set out to build Ultima 5 and you get a third of a map generator built and then you run out of steam and then nothing ever happens with it. So, uh, And then if you do a few of those types of projects, then you never finish anything and you start to get discouraged about starting things. And so, yeah, much better to choose a small uh, small game uh, to start with. and Or you get a cease and desist from Origin. Sure. You know, either way is fine. Both, you know, valid approaches. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Wow, a little callback there to uh, an earlier episode. So yeah, Lamb Chops is actually a great example of a relatively straightforward kind of little game that you could make. Not to say it was easy or uh, or quick to make, but uh, yeah, it's okay. uh, it's sort of you know it's straightforward in that sense of early Apple II arcade games. What we I guess what nowadays would call it a casual game, but at the time that was just what all games were for the most part. So you know, picking something uh, you know one game mechanic, fairly straightforward, not a lot of levels, uh, not a lot of fancy sound or effects or anything and just kind of roll with that. So it's much better to finish something small than to start something big and then it never sees the light of day. Right. And as, as simple as Lamb Chops seems, it's still a very effective game. It's one you want to keep playing and coming back to. So just because you're doing a simple project or something that, that isn't Ultima 5 uh, doesn't mean that you, you can't do something great that's going to encourage you to continue learning and, and making progress. For sure. And if you do want to make a, you know, a big game and you're in the mood to make something terrible, then there's always wizardry. You know, that's oh. also an option. I haven't made a wizardry joke in a while, so I, I, I always do. You deserve that. Yeah. Yes. I think I earned that one. <laughs> a Calabath, the, the progenitor to Ultima and a real RPG on the Apple II as opposed to wizardry, is now free on good old games, GOG.com. It's, uh, it wasn't Richard Garriott's quote first game, but it was the first one that he sold. Uh, if you dig a little into the history of a Calibeth, the original title was D and D 28 B or something like that. Garriott used to make these games that he would pass around uh, to his friends in high school to play. And Calibeth was actually the 28th game that he had made. And I think he showed it to somebody at a software store who encouraged him to, to sell it. And that's how it ended up being in baggies and, and, and sold. So, 
but um, you can download that for free right now on good old games. There was a deal running where I think there was like 80% off the entire Ultima catalog in December, but that's over now, but you can still get all the other stuff there if you want. Calabeth is an interesting thing to play just for the historical perspective, but yeah, fair warning, it's not a great game. <laughs> it's it, kind of crappy. Yeah, it's no Ultima 5, but uh, you can kind of see the seeds of it there, I guess. Having had an opportunity to to use and play around a little bit on a real Apple one at Kansas Fest 2013, it's easy to see a parallel there because using the Apple One, there's, it's actually really difficult to get it to do very much that's interesting just because it was so so limited. And while it does represent a, a great thing for the, the beginning of, of Apple and what was to come later with the Apple II and Macintosh and things, using an actual Apple One isn't all that exciting. And playing this game is sort of the same way. It's, you know, it, it kind of launched Garriott as Lord British and led to, to Origin Systems and all of these wonderful uh, Apple II RPG experiences that, that many of us shared. But the game itself, meh, not so much. Yeah, he was sort of cutting his teeth and you can kind of, you know, he's learning new skills uh, that he was going to need to ultimately, <laughs> pardon the pun, build Ultima 4, 5 <laughs> and so on, the, you know, the good ones that we all remember. But, you know, it sort of circles back to what we were saying earlier, where you can't just set out to make Ultima 5. You have to make a whole bunch of Akalabeths beforehand <laughs> to sort of build up the, the skills and the, and the knowledge and the experience to do that. And, uh, in fact, uh, Jimmy Marr, whose blog we've talked about a lot on the show, talks a lot about this. He's talked about the various Ultimas, and you can kind of see, if you analyze them in the depth that he does, you can actually see... Garriott building these skills. Each game gets a little bit better with the writing and better with the character development and better with, you know, the game mechanics. You can actually sort of witness how he's learning how to make a good RPG. And because, uh, of course, he had no real examples to draw from at the time, you know, computer RPGs, especially the Western style of, of CRPG, just they didn't exist yet. He was inventing the genre for, for the most part. So it's really interesting to see how he kind of arrived at, you know, what was ultimately a good game. Oh, there I go again. <laughs> what was what was ultimately a good game and the model for generations of games to come. But it's free, so at least you won't have to be you won't be shelling out for a bad gaming experience. So if you want to check it out, yeah, it's not going to cost you a thing. Yep, and any excuse to plug good old games, that's an awesome site. They're doing great work there. So, speaking of uh old stuff, wow, really that's that's the segue I came up with. That was, you know, I should have said, speaking of Apple One, because you said the Apple One earlier. That's that's what I should have said. <laughs> so we talked uh, we talked to Ben Heck earlier, of course, about his Apple One replica. And uh, there's actually kind of a fad or trend almost of people building uh, replica Apple Ones. And there's a couple that we uh, can link to in the show notes that are interesting. Uh, the first one that caught my eye is over on Hackaday. There's uh, someone's built a two-chip Apple One. So it's a 6502 and a microcontroller. Uh, and so this is kind of a, this kind of overlaps with two trends. There's a trend to build replica Apple ones and there's a trend to build two chip uh, computers. And the two chip computer thing has come about because there's now microcontrollers that you can buy cheaply. They're really, really fast and have lots and lots of IO pins. So what that means is you can make the microcontroller do the job of 20 or 30, you know, 1978 chips. So you can make it do the, memory address decoding, you can make it do the storage, and you can make it do the video and all this other stuff. And so all you have to do is kind of attach your retro uh, CPU of choice to it, and you can make neat little two-chip computers. So 
Uh, someone has done that. Two great tastes that go great together. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do the jokes, all right? Jeez. Uh, nah. So, yeah, this uh, two-chip Apple One is kind of a, a neat little thing. And uh, there's also another one. I think this one, this other Apple One replica is your item, right? Yeah. Dave Cheney, Cheney, Cheney uh, has created his own Apple One replica um, using an Arduino Mega 2560. And over on his webpage, he's got some great photos and a write-up of how he did it and the plans for the, the software um, that you can use, plans and software that you can use to make your own. Cool. Yeah, the Arduino, for anyone who was interested in getting started in hardware, it's hard to, hard to go wrong with the Arduino. And in fact, the Arduino Mega is the the newest version of it that's got the AT Mega chip on it, and it's actually pretty reasonably powerful. Uh, the uh, video circuitry in my uh, Veronica computer project was uh, an AT Mega 328, so it's actually quite an impressive little chip. You can crank it all the way up to 20 megahertz and do quite a lot with it. So nice to see people leveraging that to build an Apple. And it's it's great that these these microcontrollers easy for me to say, microcontrollers have stayed relatively low in price. You know, you can get a lot of power for 35, 40 bucks. And if you want add-ons to, to make it even more useful, even those aren't crazy expensive. I, I remember when back in late nineties, I guess, when there were a bunch of different companies like Diamond Multimedia and, and I think ATI and, and NVIDIA were the big ones, but there were a couple of others that all made video controllers and because of the competition, the prices of the board, like you could get a, a really good graphics accelerator for a hundred bucks back then, you know, and, and as soon as I think one or two of them shut down, the other two ATI named and um, NVIDIA realized, hey, we're the only ones in the games and the prices on those boards really shot up, uh, really shot up and you were still getting kind of the same power. So it's great now that that, that, that isn't going on with, with these, you know, the, the Raspberry Pi and the, the BeagleBone and things like that. Yeah, there's really exciting things happening with these small development kits and single board computer kits. And what's great about these chips is not only can you buy cool little development boards like the Arduino for, you know, 20, 30 bucks around the chip, the chip itself, you know, if you're willing to forego the Arduino development environment uh, and associated bootloader and so on, once you know a little bit more about how this stuff works, you know, you can buy the chip that the Arduino was built around around for like a dollar. So, uh, you know, I buy them by the handful and they're just, they're super easy to use and they still come in dip packages, which is fantastic. You know, that's the, the hobbyist friendly form factor that you can stick in your breadboard and, and, uh, is great to learn with. I don't know how many more years that's going to go on. It's getting harder and harder to get interesting chips in dip packages. But, uh, fortunately there's companies like SparkFun that are, you know, make breakout boards so you can put an SMD chip on that and still get your, your dip form factor. Uh, for anyone who isn't familiar, you know, dip is the style of chip that's in the Apple II where there's little legs that stick down. And so they're really easy to work with. Everything's kind of large. You can, they're easy to solder and easy to, to stick into a breadboard and attach wires to compared to the modern thing, which is what you'd see inside your, you know, your MacBook Pro or your, or your iPhone, which uh, is called surface mount technology or surface mount devices. And those have no visible pins or, you know, sometimes they have little nubs or something. And, you know, they're designed to be placed by robots and, you know, high-speed manufacturing plants. And they tend to be very tiny and can be tricky to work with. It's still possible to solder them by hand, but it's definitely much trickier and less hobbyist-friendly. So, uh, but fortunately, uh, Atmel and Parallax and these companies are still making a lot of hobbyist-friendly chips. So get them while you can. 
And because of the low prices and sort of the, I guess, open source development tools in a lot of, of cases, a lot of really strong communities have, have sprung up around these various platforms. So uh, whichever one you choose, if you get stuck or if you need an idea or you don't understand a concept, it's easy to get help from people who have been there and know and can answer your questions. Yeah, that's actually a really great point. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, much like the Apple II, what makes these dev boards great is is the community. So you can go over to avrfreaks.com and, you know, find every question you might possibly have answered and the tool chains are all there. You don't have to spend a dime on tools, uh, which is not very many years ago. That wasn't true. One of the sources of revenue for these companies was they would sell you these chips, but then they would charge you, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars for their software to to talk to the chips and to program them. But now, you know, there's things like AVR Dude and AVR GCC, the compiler and so on, that's just all free. And it's not quite as easy to use in some cases, but again, the help is all out there and plenty of examples. So it's never been easier to get into hardware development for sure. I found, okay, so if you go to places like a community specifically for arcade cabinet collectors called Kalov, Carrington and I talk about a lot on that other podcast that I do, it can be sort of a rough environment there, especially <laughs> if you're new and you're trying to figure things out and you ask the wrong question or, um, you know, not to bash them too much, but, it, you know, if you're not respectful enough, they will they will tear into you and make it an unpleasant experience for you. And I have not seen that around these hobbyist boards. I mean, you can go in there as a complete newbie, no experience, no knowledge at all, and ask away. And most of the people are really happy to, to guide you, handhold you through the process and, and help out. I've, I've found the communities to be very open and accepting and, and willing to share. And I hope it stays that way. Yeah, I think it varies a little bit by uh, forum. Yeah, Clav uh, is a little bit notorious for that. Uh, on the development board side of things, you know, Hackaday is a popular blog that covers this kind of stuff. And their forum, their, rather their comment threads are a bit notorious for, for being uh, a little bit trollish and confrontational. Well, that's because you're a girl. <laughs> yeah, well, honestly, yeah, everyone. Uh, there's sort of a divide between sort of the Arduino type of person who's new to this type of thing and, you know, the quote-unquote proper electrical engineer who's been doing this forever and went to school forever and knows everything. And those two cultures tend to clash in a few areas, and Hackaday is an area where they where they clash. But, uh, you know, yeah, AVR Freaks is great, and there's lots of very friendly types of environments to learn this stuff. You know, there's kind of the more casual kind of what they call the maker movement. And if you kind of stick to those areas, if you're learning, I think they're a little more friendly and a little more, you know, willing to help as opposed to some of the more hardcore kind of electrical engineering hacker type uh, places. So yeah, you know, yeah, be prepared. It is the internet after all. So <laughs> be prepared to have a thick skin if necessary. But in general, I think, yeah, people are awesome. Yep. If you're into Raspberry Pi, which is something I've been playing with a lot lately, I highly recommend Adafruit.com. Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, of Adafruit in general. Uh, they're uh, yeah, they're awesome over there. Okay, what else do we have? Uh, let's see. Well, I think the last thing I had was uh, a little bit of shameless self promotion, as I'm want to do. Uh, <laughs> yes, on February 2nd, I'm going to be giving a guest lecture at Stanford about uh, Ver my Veronica computer that I built and showed at uh, KFest in 2014. They uh, heard about that and were interested in having me come and talk to their computer science program about it. So I'm going to be talking to uh, their CS107E class and their women in computer science group. So if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area and can get yourself over to Stanford, maybe you want to sit in. Uh, this is probably the last show that will air before that happens, but uh, it is on February 2nd, and I'm sure there's details 
uh, available from them. I will link to it in the show notes if and when uh, anything becomes available as far as links that I can share. Well, uh, congratulations on, on lending that. That sounds like a really cool thing. No, thanks. Yeah, you know, I've given a few of these sorts of things, and uh, it's always fun to do it. Uh, you know, it's something different for the students, and they're always excited to hear someone besides their, you know, same old professor <laughs> lecturing at them about the same old things. <laughs> so uh, the enthusiasm level is always a little higher. And, uh, you know, I just like to hear the sound of my own voice, so that's all good. Well, of course you do. That's why you're on this show. Yeah, that, of course. Uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to hearing your report on that. So we'll wrap up today's news, and then we'll get to some user uh, listener feedback in just a minute. But uh, there is sort of an interesting item that I wanted to share about um, uh, Apple II and, and retro computing music in general. I'm a big fan of the Sid music and things like that. We've talked about Joe Eli's Apple II made album that he released recently, and there was an item on Apple on a2central.com. Uh, Sean Fahey posted it. It's about this German fellow named Jonas. He goes by Stinks, I think, S-T-Y-N-X, on the various message boards, has set up a page on SoundCloud.com called the Vintage Micro Music. And it's a bunch of different tracks and sounds and things like that that he's found on, on floppies. And it's a lot of fun just listening to that stuff. Awesome. Yeah, that stuff's always fun to listen to. It. I like that nostalgic kind of 8-bit music. Okay, Quinn... I almost called you Karen. <laughs> Ooh, wow. <laughs> First you close our show with a no quarter bumper, and now you call me after a bald loudmouth dude. <laughs> <laughs> bald Canadian loudmouth. Well, we're both Canadian, so that's an honest mistake. Oh, yeah, that's true. I kid. I kid. Um, whoever you are at the end of this, uh, <laughs> yeah. the other end of this conversation. Who am I talking to? What is this? Uh, that's right. Where are we? Um, Who are you people? <laughs> Get off my lawn. I know that we have some listener feedback. Would you like to share that? We with do. Our, our pleas for listener feedback last episode did not go unanswered. We got some nice feedback this time. So thanks for that. Uh, you know, as always, if you're interested in letting us know what you think, you can reach us at podcast at open-apple.net. We always love to hear from you. So do write us when you get a chance. Our first email comes from listener Mike, uh, not the Mike who's at the other end of this mic. Uh, uh, yeah, a lot of mics. Uh, so he wrote, uh, last time we talked about uh, leaking batteries and what they can do to your 2GS. And uh, Mike wrote in to let us know about uh, a tip he found on a pinball site. Uh, there's lots of overlap between retro computer people and pinball people. And there's a dude called the Pinball Ninja who has this series of videos. Uh, sadly, I can't link to them. They're behind a paywall, but I've never seen them myself. But people do say they are very informative. And apparently he says uh, if you have areas of a PCB that are corroded by battery damage that you can, once you've cleaned up the corrosion, you can cover them with clear nail polish to mm. prevent the spread of that corrosion in the future. So I had mentioned before that it's kind of like cancer and that, you know, it, it comes back sometimes even when you think you've got it all. So uh, I haven't heard about this tip and I haven't tried it myself, so I'm not sure. Uh, it's It seems plausible because the alkali corrosion reaction does require oxygen. So in theory, if the nail polish seals everything in place, the corrosion should not be able to, you know, get oxygen to spread. I'm not really sure though. I haven't tried it. So uh, it has a certain plausibility to it. And I'd be interested to see if anyone has given that a shot. So let's see the next email I have is from listener Tom, and he wrote in to let us know we talked about the Bilestowed last month in our weird gaming segment, and uh, he gave us an interesting little factoid here. It turns out that Softdisk uh, included this game in issue 84. 
they did a series oh. of reprinting older commercial titles. And so, yeah, Softdisk uh, did offer the Bilestone at one time, which is pretty cool. You know, Softdisk was a very cool, hip kind of magazine, so it doesn't uh, surprise me that they would publish uh, kind of an edgy game like that. It's neat that uh, apparently they have extensive instructions in it as well, which is very important for the Bilestone. <laughs> uh, hopefully everyone saw in the show notes last month, I linked to some instructions for that game if you wanted to try it. It's definitely not the kind of game that you can just fire up and mash all the keys to figure out how to play it. It's uh, You definitely want to RTFM on that one. So thanks for that tip, Tom. That was great information. I have a vague memory of John Romero at um, he keynoted Kansas Fest a couple of years back, and I have a, a, a vague memory of him mentioning because he worked at Soft uh, Soft Disk uh, as well, and I think he mentioned that something about it having been published there, and then maybe that's where he discovered it. I'm not sure. So let's see. Next one I've got is from listener Paul, who writes in to tell us he's a new listener to the show, and he just wanted to tell us that. Uh, He's uh, loving the show, and he just finished listening to our last episode. He said he got an Apple IIe in 1982. He was a public school art teacher at the time, so that's kind of interesting. I always liked art teachers back in school. They were always the the coolest teachers. <laughs> the stoners in the yeah. My uh, it wasn't until years later that I realized that the smell, the distinctive smell in my <laughs> junior high school art room, was in fact weed. So the the naivete uh, of my youth. So not the <laughs> that's right. It wasn't that was not varnish so anyway yeah thanks for writing in paul always great to hear from yeah, new listeners and uh let's see also we've got another email from listener herbert who we've written uh, who has written in before and yeah he just wanted to let us know about the uh post about HU Central from Sean on the Facebook Apple II group. And yeah, we definitely uh, appreciate that. We definitely want to give A2 Central the props that it deserves. Uh, it's, as we said before, a lot of work and we really appreciate the work that Sean's doing there. So once again, if you have any interest in helping out with A2 Central, we will have a link where you can do that in the show notes. And uh, he also talks a little bit about uh, Kansas Fest. He's asking for specific dates uh, on whether People are deciding, you know, whether to go or not. Uh, there's probably lots of fence sitters in our audience about Kansas Fest. And first of all, let me say, if you're listening to this show, then you definitely belong at Kansas Fest. You know, there's <laughs> there's no question. Uh, I hesitated for a couple of years, and I wish I hadn't, because not only did I miss uh, the Waz, but uh, I missed lots of other great stuff. So I wish I had gone sooner. It is pretty amazing. Uh, we don't have any dates for it just yet for 2015, but as soon as we do, of course, we will definitely announce them here. Uh, but uh, for a more uh, immediate response, of course, you can keep an eye on A2 Central, where it will definitely be posted as well. Or you can visit kansasfest.org. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the obvious answer, I suppose, yeah. Uh, I don't know when they traditionally announce the dates. Do you know, Mike? Uh, it's usually right around this time, maybe late January, February at the latest. Okay. So, yeah, in general, it's, you know, what, the last – is the last two weeks of July? I, th it's, I think it's the third week in July. Week in July. Um, it has a lot to do with, uh, you know, the, the other activities going on at Rockhurst University. But we've been there long enough now. We. I'm not part of it. Kansas Fest committee has organized this every year going back to 2005 at Rockhurst. So I think it's, it's, uh, they know, they know who we as a group are and, and, and what to expect. And so I, I think it's probably a good bet that it's going to be the, the second or third week in, in July, but we won't know probably for another couple of weeks. Cool. Yeah. So if you want to block out the third week of July or something, that's probably a safe bet. But yeah, for sure, watch kansasfest.org and atcentral.com for specific dates uh, coming any day now. Anything else? Uh, that's all the feedback I have. Do you have anything, Mike? 
No, uh, I think that uh, pretty much wraps it up for today. Uh, thank you very much to, to Ben Heck for taking some time and talking to us about uh, about the Apple One and the, the Apple Two GS laptop project. See that he couldn't remember much about. <laughs> yeah, he did great. That was an awesome interview. I was really glad to finally get Ben on the show. Uh, we we've had some listeners asking to, for us to talk to him, so great to have him here. Yep, and we've got some exciting stuff coming up. So stay tuned. <laughs> now is game designer Bill Budge, who works with Electronic Arts, and the president of Electronic Arts, Trip Hawkins. Bill, uh, there's quite an array of uh, games out here on the table, and what is it that makes a, a game successful, or what kind of factors go into the design of a game? Uh, it's really hard to, um, you can't ask people what they want to see on the computer and what kind of programs they want. I really think that a person writing a program has to have an inner conviction of something uh, and write a program that they want to write and a program that they want to use. Uh, when I started writing this program, it was something I really wanted to do. I wanted to see it work. And Where'd I, you get the idea for, for um, say? I always liked building things, and it was a funny, indirect kind of process. I got tired of writing video games. I was really sick of playing them by this time. And I thought, well, it's fun to, to make video games. I still kind of like to write them, and I bet other people would really like to write them. You're talking about the pinball construction set. Right. And uh, this is kind of a nice game because it actually involves you in the construction of the game itself. It's kind of like a metagame. What yeah. is, is the success of that have been pretty good in, in a sense? Of, is there a special segment that you're selling to as far as the construction well, set? Well, when you start out, yeah, you're looking uh, to the really avant-garde computer users. It takes a while for the message to get out there. When everyone is still discovering Pac-Man and a program comes along that's telling them they can build video games, well, it doesn't register at first, but it's got a slow growth that builds up, and, and finally, now we're getting getting you know, very good results of the game kind of craze dies out. This stuff's taken off. Mm -hmm. Trip on, on the business side, what do you look Good morning. morning. I'd like to buy a cat. Certainly, sir. Got a lovely terrier? <laughs> no, I want a cat, really. Oh, yeah. How about that? <laughs> well, that's the terrier. Well, it's as near as damn it. <laughs> well, what do you mean? I want a cat. Listen, tell you what. I'll file its legs down a bit, take its snout off, stick a few wires through its cheeks. There you are, lovely pussycat. It's not a proper cat. What do you mean? Well, it wouldn't meow. Well, it'll howl a bit. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, have you got a parrot? Oh, I'm afraid not, actually, Gov. We're fresh out of parrots. Tell you what, though. I'll lop its back legs off, make good, strip the fur, stick a couple of wings on, and staple on a beak of your own choice. No problem, lovely parrot. How long would that take? Oh, let me see. Uh, stripping the fur off, no legs. Harry! Yeah? Can you do a parrot job on this, uh, can you do a parrot job on this terrier straight away? No, I'm still putting a tuck in the Airedale. And then I've got the frogs to let out. Friday? <laughs> no, I need it for tomorrow. It's a present. Oh, dear. It's a long job, you see, parrot conversion. Uh, tell you what, though. For free. Terriers make lovely fish. I mean, I will do that straight for you straight away. <laughs> Legs off, fins on, stick a little pipe through the back of his neck so he can breathe. Bit of gold paint, make good. You'd need a very big tank. It's a great conversation piece. <laughs> yeah, all right, oh. all right. But uh, only if I can watch.
This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. Do I the Macintosh is evil or something? Or?